one of my wife's friends from Canada came down. She made fun of me 24-7 for my, uh-huh. like I was in the Sopranos, but years before that happened. Like, oh, yeah, how you doing? Uh, Brookline. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I hate that. Get the fuck I hate out of here. <laughs> Once somebody knows you're an Italian-American. Oh, God, right to the gangster shit. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not in a mob. Yeah. <laughs> I don't wear one of those spaghetti strap t-shirts. I don't have, like, stains on me. I don't eat spaghetti all night long. I don't, like, belong to the mob. You know, get out of here. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they go, you're Italian-American. We made you spaghetti. I'm like, oh, thank you. White fucking ketchup. <laughs> Inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Harry Grant on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network now on Podbean. Yeah, I know that's the worst one you've ever heard. <laughs> the ninth and final episode of the 13th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Sir Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, Archibald Alec Leach was born in Bristol, England at the turn of the century, January 18th, 1904, to a tailor and a seamstress. A theatrical tour of New York City led him to emigrate at the ripe old age of 16, where he became a vaudeville song and dance man on the same circuit as the likes of the Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello, and Ted Healy and his Stooges. Apparently, he actually idolized the, quote, handsome straight man, Zeppo Marx. He moved to Hollywood at the height of the Depression and tried to emulate stuntman and screen idol Douglas Fairbanks Sr., winding up cast as handsome young men and rich playboys in a handful of Marlena Dietrich and Mae West films, the latter of which elevated him to leading man status. But it wasn't until the rise of the screwball comedy that he truly made his mark, starring in several of the best-known entries thereof. A long run of similar, if by the late 40s, increasingly inferior efforts was salvaged by four well-regarded films for the great Alfred Hitchcock, which subverted his image in favor of a darker, more realistic persona, and which almost led to his casting as the first James Bond in Dr. No. But he could only commit to one film in what was always intended as an ongoing series. After a handful of interesting, if decidedly flawed oddities that followed, he finally retired from film in the mid-60s, 30 years on, to huck makeup and such like, believe it or not. Yes, yeah, so I am uh, Doc Savage, and hello, Mr. Lewis Paul is with me. Hello. Hello, everyone. So, yeah, I mean, is there anything you want to add before we just jump right into his earlier work? Well, yeah, I I mean, I, I know we're going to hit some things like uh, Topper and probably Gunga Din and yep, yep. His Girl Friday and stuff yep. like that, Philadelphia Story. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, as you mentioned, by the late 40s, it gets a lot more interesting. And then it gets kind of bland until, like, the uh, late 50s. Mm-hmm. But... Um, this guy worked so much mm-hmm. in the when he was film debut from bit parts to like more than bit parts. Really interesting stuff he did. So well, he was a contract player for a couple of places. I, I forget. One of them was I think he's loaning out to RKO for a while, but the other one might have been Columbia. Right. And so what they did in those days, especially if they thought they had somebody that had potential as a leading man or an ingenue leading woman, they would just give them on the rounds and they just churned them out one after the other. A lot of these things were forgettable. 
But you, know, you definitely hit some gold in there, too. But, yeah, I mean, it's funny. My wife definitely was like, can you find out why he had that stupid accent? Because, you know, obviously the voice <laughs> he does is very put upon. You know, I did a terrible impression of it before. But, you know, he has this accent like this that's very distinguishable and bizarre. I don't think it's put upon. I think, as I shared with you, Francis Matthews, another actor, had a similar accent. But much more distinguished. Carries this very artificial you know you know like carrie was a cockney he actually had you can see some right. some of his earlier movies you hear his real accent and it's like okay that's fine but i guess he wanted to posh it up or something and it comes out almost like a crust between that and gregory peck <laughs> he's got to pull up his ass when he's talking but yeah yeah well well the thing was i think francis i'm trying to recollect here francis matthews had said something to me because they came from the same area yeah probably the same walk of life uh, just maybe years apart that Carrie Grant, Archibald, he had a very distinct, as you say, Cockney accent. And so that didn't fly. But, you know, to... to uh... Yeah, it's hardly the Sweeney. We're not talking about, uh, who is that, John Thaw? It's, it's no. not like, I, I might, you're Nick. You know, it was, but you do notice that there is a more naturalistic accent. And then he puts on this airs here. You know, just to, even from the Brother of Vaudeville days, you know, that's what sold. That's what got that's him across. That's what sold, right. And, and, and I think, though, that the studios didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So they probably sent him to vocal coaches. And they said, but let's see what we can do with this. <laughs> and, you know, the, you know, well, you're British. And so maybe what we can do is uh, try to posh it up a little bit. It's probably not easy for him to do i'm sure well in those days they did have and they actually refer to his as being similar to this or, or one of them that quote-unquote mid-atlantic accent that doesn't really exist nobody actually has this accent right. but they taught it in studios in the days before the method so that you know you know how the women in all these old movies talk like this and whatever it's got that kind of uh, well, you know, very theatrical artificial sort of thing but it sounds more posh and you know ah, i'm mary from kansas or you know whatever talking like a new yorker whatever it is they're kind of erasing your regional accents to give you this fake uh hollywood screen sort of a whatever it is fake accent for and that went on for decades i think in the 50s or so that's when it stopped it's funny you know when i used to work for uh near a public library for the performing arts and you know, i was a reference library which means we answered phones and uh, tried to research more than one person would say are you from canada <laughs> Oh, I'm from Brooklyn. You you have a Canadian accent. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'll talk to the Midwesterners sometimes, and if they are far enough north, like let's say like a Minnesota area or something, they've got a little bit of that, you know, you know how the Canadians talk like that, a eh, and a boot, whatever. They don't necessarily have the a eh, in a boot thing, but they've got a very similar sounding, you know, like somebody in Calgary doesn't sound that far removed to somebody from Minnesota a lot of times. Uh, so there's something about that, but us, we don't have that. I mean, hell, one of my wife's friends from Canada came down when we uh, were first engaging, we were getting married, and she made fun of me 24-7 for my, uh-huh. like I was in the Sopranos, but years before that happened, like, oh, yeah, how you doing, uh, Brookline? I'm like, yeah. Oh, I hate that. I hate okay, that. a boot, eh? Get the fuck out of here. Once somebody <laughs> knows you're an Italian-American. Oh, God, right to the gangster shit. Yeah. That's why I hid it for years. And, and, like, you know, I'll tell you how I was embarrassed of that shit. It's because I grew up in that crowd, and I was used to people doing that. I'm like, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, sorry. I'm I, not in a mob. I, I, have, I have a, a Filipino wife, and, and... Mm-hmm. Look, you know, women in my past. I don't wear one of those spaghetti strap t-shirts. I don't have like stains on me. I don't eat spaghetti all night long. I don't like belong to the mob. You know, get out of here. Oh yeah, and then I, you know, I went to the Philippines. I go, you're Italian American. 
We made you spaghetti. I'm like, cool, thank you. White fucking ketchup. <laughs> it's like, I love uh, Tony D'Angelo, the, the wrestler in NXT, but he's really playing up that whole, like, soprano. It's like, oh, come on, really? I mean, it's funny as hell with being there, but when people actually think that's how you are, I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, sure, right. <laughs> I'll never forget that trip. They always tried to make me so happy, but they made me food with ketchup. Oh God! It's like my father. It's like my father. He put ketchup on every fucking thing. And the best was if you went to some kind of restaurant that was more exotic, anything from I always say Italian restaurant, but say like you went to a Japanese restaurant or something, he'd order like steak. And if you were lucky, he was really feeling exotic, he might put teriyaki sauce on it. Otherwise, it was like ketchup on every fucking. Come on, man. (laughs) Because he was not Italian at all. (laughs) But anyway. All right, where are we starting? 1932, Devil in the Deep. Wow, really early, okay. Yep, Flaming Queen Charles Lawton of the Old Dark House, <laughs> Island of Lost Souls in Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn, and the charmingly, quote, ambisextress, her own word, Tallulah Bankhead of Hitchcock's Lifeboat and the Black Widow from Batman, as well as her Hammer film shows Die, Die, My Darling, is typically delightful and presumably still not wearing underwear while climbing into water tanks to appreciative onlookers and messing with both male and female members of the cast are the real stars of this one. Grant is barely in this film, appearing in the first half hour or less as the original naval subordinate who Lawton believes is in an affair with Bankhead and who gets ejected from the Navy, dishonorably therefore. Directed by a Marion Gehring of no notable credits, this one is about the believably nymphomaniacal Bankhead, whose ostensible husband Lawton is insanely jealous and aware of her affair with Grant, which may or may not be true, and her actual one with the ever-stiff but strangely beloved Gary Cooper, which results in an Edgar Allan Poe-like vengeance upon them both, tricking both of them into joining him on a submarine, which he deliberately veers into the path of another ship, sinking it, intending to drown them all. Of course, they survive, and there's a sort of happy end. It's typical if like pre-code fluff, but it's watchful mostly for Bankhead and Lawton's rather Dr. Moreauish insanity. Did you see this one at all? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, the little Bankhead. What do you do with that? I like her, but <laughs> she was something else. I like, I like her, and and like it's like one of those things everybody in Hollywood knew. Uh huh. You're not gonna know. And uh, she gave everybody a thrill in lifeboat and the set to climb up from the water tank every day. <laughs> Gary Cooper, another another one of those. Maybe a member of the Rock Hudson clan? Yeah. We're going to get to Randolph Scott later, too. But go ahead. <laughs> and Charles Lawton. Well, Charles Lawton. And then there's Carrie. And, you know, yeah, he doesn't really... He disappears from the movie, so I don't really remember much yeah. about... You know, like, he just doesn't have a... Uh, he's in it, but he disappears pretty quick, and he's not that memorable because of that. It's nice if you want to see something pre-code. Yes, um, exactly. I liked it because of that. Yeah, I like watching pre-code movies because, like, they got away with this. Oh, yeah, it's, if you watch pre-code movies, it's like reading decadent literature, which was from, you know, the Fonda Seekers before the century turned, like the 1880s. And you're looking at this stuff, and I said it all the time in my journal decadence over at Third Eye Cinema, this is like reading something contemporary. I understand these people. Yeah, they might be walking around in, you know, waistcoats or whatever the hell else, and they have a little bit of the, you know, parlor uh, party sort of, you know, comedy of manners kind of thing going on, but not much. It's, it's much more than something like Oscar Wilde or even Noel Cow or something like that. 
these people are writing very directly and honestly about, you know, sex and violence and passion and their relationships are believable. It's, it's amazing. That's the decadent literature, but you go to this stuff in the pre-code and it's very similar. There's sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, you know, there's, there's adultery going on. There's three ways going on. There's lesbianism going on. There's, you name it. You know, people getting away like uh, Barbara de Ravilli, you know, Crime Without Punishment, as they called it. Mm-hmm. Some of Lid Dabalik, uh, the original book. And it's, it's like that. You know, people get away with shit there's gangsters like scarface you know there's incest there's all kinds of crazy shit in there that nowadays i mean for decades after that you could not get away with and nowadays even in a supposedly permissive society though we're heading back the wrong way you still could get away with this stuff so pre-code stuff is really cool i really enjoy that shit as a rule anything else on this one before we go to the next no all right so the same year 1932 merrily we go to hell Sylvia Sidney of Hitchcock's Sabotage and the 30 Day Princess, which we'll cover soon, and Frederick March of Death Takes a Holiday, Nothing Sacred, and The Eagle and the Hawk, again, we'll cover that soon, are an unhappy couple in this weirdly hippie-esque tale of open marriages from a Dorothy Arzner of no notable credits, but who appears to have been one of the very few female directors of her day. March is a hopeless Fitzgeraldian drunk. Sidney marries him anyway, despite that and his philandering, but eventually gets fed up and declares it an open marriage, a la Will Smith. Grant appears briefly as one of her fuck buddies. This Mm -hmm. would appear to be a pretty standard, unwatchable weepy of the era, were it not for the still rather unusual all-day key party plot focus in their dissolving relationship. It's like the ice storm, but slightly less suicidal, mostly given the era in which it was released and how much this sort of unconventional, if ill-fated marital arrangement stood out from society at large. But overall... Yeah. yeah, I mean, if we're disca- uh, we are discussing Karen Grant, it's another minor role for him. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Arsner was a Broadway playwright, and uh, she hit gold a couple of times back in the day. So I'm really interesting that they actually they want to make a movie. They actually went that way. It's interesting, this, these pre-code movies, the depiction of alcoholism, mm-hmm. are rough. They're rough. Oh, yeah. And drugs, until it really strung out. Yeah. And drugs, yeah. But we're not we're not talking the uh, Friedman, you know. <laughs> uh, what was that other guy, you know? Uh, the guys that went town to town with, like, uh, all these. The guy that did Maniac. Dwayne Esper. Yes, Dwayne Esper, right. Those roadshow things. So, we, no, we're not talking that level of shock. No, but, but damn close. But, yeah, but damn close. I mean, it's like, uh, yeesh. <laughs> Uh, Sylvia Sidney was always an interesting actress to me because she worked for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And she managed to hit some really good movies in the 60s, too. And I always found her interesting because, like, never found her one of the uh, guilty Barbara Bain crowd. But I-, I thought she was interesting enough. As far as Carrie, he had such a small role in this. I I just, nothing much to say about him in this. Yeah. So next up, same year again, Blonde Venus. Grant's first role of any note was under silent film director Joseph von Sternberg, who he fought with constantly, by the way, and his ingenue, quote, discovery and long-term bed partner, Marlena Dietrich. It's a typical Dietrich affair. I found this, like all of her work, kind of hard to sit through. Grant is the other man in the scenario, a rich John who falls for bored, decadent Chanteuse Dietrich after she does a ridiculous number with Jungle Savages where she emerges from a gorilla suit, a shit you not, it's called hot voodoo, and plies her with money and jewels in exchange for some backstage oral favors. Seriously, that's how they refer to it, four favors, quote-unquote. Of course, he's just a side plot at best. She's really involved with some other rich clown, the usual beta Brit of these era pictures, and in the end, he and Dietrich, who's always been very much bisexual, if not predominantly lesbian mind, supposedly have a happy ending marriage. 
Whatever. Despite how it seems, Grant is barely in this one, at least insofar as I was able to keep my eyes open. I never got the whole Dietrich and Garbo thing, though I would take Marlene over credit any day of the week. What's your take? It's an odd movie. You know, Herbert Marshall was, uh, yeah, this is Cary Grant's first, like, major co-star billing. And Herbert Marshall is, you know, before him. And Herbert Marshall was a, 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 he came over from the silent era. He was one of those actors who was very well revered, but he had an intonation to his voice that people didn't, you know, people love Herbert Marshall in the silent films, but when he went over to talkies. <laughs> yes, thank you. My time was on. <laughs> so when he went over to talkies, they're rather insistent. They usually just throw your fucking box there. Like, yeah, <laughs> now you take a picture. They call you. They ring your bell. I bet you he called me. He did. He <laughs> but, yeah, it's like John Gilbert was accused of, where they all of a sudden, oh, no, his voice is so terrible. But if you watch the old movies, it's really not. It's not. But he had that reputation. So, so I want to say that Herbert Marshall is really not. Yeah. To follow that up. I think he's fine. He's serviceable. Yeah. He's but I guess they wanted that, you know, once talkie started and they got used to, like, a smooth voice thingy, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, uh, it's not how I envisioned him to sound. You know, that kind of yeah, thing. I'd say the only of these old pre-code movies and actors that were silent and moved to talkies that really, you could see why they said, eh, they don't really work anymore, Clara Bow. That voice was something else. That, that high-pitched Brookline uh, mixed with Betty Boop sort of thing <laughs> did not work in talkies. Uh, uh, well, it makes you feel bad in retrospect. Yes, yeah, so. that's true. But John Gilbert did not deserve it, and neither did this guy, even though, like I said, he's a typical beta Brit for these kind of movies. Well, yeah, yeah. So Carrie, nice billing, but, yeah, you know. Yeah, it was not really his breakout role, even though he did get a high billing, considering. Sure. So, so again, 1932, he's really busy. Hot Saturday. Jesus. Where'd you see this one? Uh, you know, there's, there's sets out there, and there, this was actually on a pre-code set. Not as a, These other ones are like, there's so many Cary Grant sets out there. But, yeah, this is actually a set of pre-code films. I'm going to have to get this one because I I couldn't find this one. Go ahead. So, a William A. Selter of no notable credits directs this pre-code indictment of uptight, gossipy small-town types. Flapper-type Nancy Carroll is a bank clerk chased by Edward Woods of Dinner at Eight in the Tarzan the Fearless serial. Grant, in an early leading man role, is a rich fuck playboy who's also hot for her and invites her and Woods on a weekend shindig. Grant turns out to be a perfect gentleman despite everything, but Woods has more hands than an octopus and tries to trap her into fucking when they're out on a boat together. She rebuffs him and has to stagger her way back to Grant's place, where she spends the rest of the weekend and he brings her to work on Monday. The little incel, though, starts rumors about her and Grant, which is such a scandal to these pull-up-their-ass right-wing fucks that she loses her job, gets thrown out of her house, and winds up staying with old school chum and doofy right-wing cowboy Randolph Scott, my favorite wife, on his supposed archaeological dig not far outside town. Because, you know, there's so much valuable history to dig out from Midwestern America. He decides to marry her right off the bat, only to have Woods fuck her over again by inviting Scott, Grant, and Carol to some shindig where he blows the whistle on her, quote, sordid reputation, causing flag-waving moral values type Scott to break off the engagement, leaving her once again with Grant. Scott changes his mind the next day, only for Carol to inform that, hey, it might have been a rumor last night, but Grant finally dipped his jack in my box, so go fuck yourself. And who the hell can blame her? Well, the only good thing to say about this one, other than some fun scenes of drunken revelry, is that the much-put-upon heroine effectively writes things by giving up tight society the bird, like she should have done in the first damn place. And hey, it's Cary Grant, he's rich, and he likes to party, so she got the better end of the stick by far. <laughs> Gasp! Cue the Hayes Code! We have to have her miserable pumping out children and voting Republican! 
really. I mean, I just don't get people. <laughs> but the film is, that, that's basically what it is. And there are merits to it if you can sit through the rest of the nonsense. Sounds like fun. <laughs> in a way parts of it are fun if you don't mind her getting so put upon just because of these uptight values like come on really and the funny thing is Randolph Scott well I'm sure we'll get to him later but you know Cary Grant and Randolph Scott were quote most eligible bachelors living together for like seven years <laughs> yeah you know I, Rand, Randolph Scott was rumored to be Mr. 14 Inches uh-huh yeah so we most people that are aware of this era of Hollywood are like yeah I don't know uh. <laughs> you know <laughs> So anyway, a little something for you about Carrie and Randolph there. So 1933 now, She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel. It's the two Mae West films I'm coming together. You bad girl, you'll find out. Sure you don't mind my holding your hand. It ain't heavy, I can hold it myself. That's right, it's everyone's favorite foul-mouthed suffragette, the Bette Midler of the Jazz Age, Mae West. I'll tell you this much, you're going to like what I got in mind. If someone's got something on their mind, I'd like them to get it off. You were wonderful tonight. I'm always wonderful at night. Yes, but I thought you were especially good. When I'm good, I'm good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. West gives up-and-comer Grant a much bigger part, even giving the newcomer second billing, despite not even showing up until nearly two-thirds into the film. Yes. Lowell Sherman, who would bring Grant to his subsequent Born to be Bad, and Wesley Ruggles, whose only other credits of any note were the early Bing Crosby comedy, College Humor, and the Clark Gable Carol Lombard weepy No Man of Her Own, give Grant his first major roles under the aegis of blowsy but lovely filthy-minded vaudevillian Mae West. West, who'd been kicking around and scandalizing Peru's that perpetually uptight since the turn of the century, brought her smash theatrical plays like the rather bluntly named Sex to pre-code Hollywood, providing a lightning rod to middle American morons with a pole up their ass to enact the dreaded Hayes Code that gave us at least three decades of separate bedroom, no bathroom morality plays without a hint of adult relationship, styling pretty much everything from 1934 to 1965, that unwatchable sub comics, quote, Wholesome family values bullshit, that at least so much of that era of the utter drag it ultimately is. West, who fought off jail time, protests, scandal, and show closing in her theater days, was arguably the original female mogul and power player, writing her own scripts and doing many of her own stunts, and choosing her leading men, named directors, casting, at least in her pre-code films and plays, were very much in name only. It was all her. She always claimed, and it's probably true, to have spotted the relatively unknown Grant on the studio lot and picked him on looks alone, though he does a rather good job in the relatively late in the proceedings yet second-billed role in both of these pictures. And she'd done him wrong, West is the kept girl on stage act for a mobster-come-nightclub owner whose other job involves effective white slavery and collecting from his trained female pickpocket ring, among other things. Grant cameos once or twice in the first hour or so as the Salvation Army cloaked mission captain next door to the CD club. Picture this, Salvation Army thing right next to the CD club, who she has a thing for because all cheap tarts love the prospect of converting a virgin or priest in training. <laughs> I, I actually went to college with a guy in a seminary program, and he claimed to be getting quite a bit of pussy out of girls who wanted to help him stray from the past, so to speak. <laughs> but at the end of the film, it turns out to be a cover because he's a fed trying to bust her mobbed-up sugar daddy and his ring of iniquity. Pretty slight stuff. In I'm No Angel, the story only shifts slightly. This time, West is the nightclub back with carny overtones. She actually does a lion tamer act at one point, not just the usual Rusty Warren come torch singer bit. And girlfriend of a pickpocket and extortionist who, much like the last film, gets sent down long enough for her to get hot for Grant, who once again doesn't show up to almost two-thirds of the picture, a pal trying to break up her taking his rich, engaged buddy for a ride with her extortion stick. 
this time Grant gets more screen time when he does finally show up, falling for her big time only to break off their engagement when her old flame gets out of the clinic. Weirdly, she sues Grant for breach of promise. Grant's lawyer smears the papers with her seedy sex life and loses anyway. But instead of walking away with a big cash hit, she defers payout for a bigger alimony suit later by marrying the guy anyway. Wes, who'd lose all her biting double entendre lead in appeal after the Hayes Code kicked in, and bolderize her sufficient to gain the approval of the Dana Carver Church Lady Temperance Wives of Red State America in her later films, had one geriatric last gasp with her ridiculously gay and quite hilarious sextet at the end of the 70s, featuring the least of the Bonds, Timothy Dalton, and the bizarrely enamored young sex slave to practically mummified octogenarian West, who at least could still drop some hoary zingers. But this was really her last film of any note. Grant, practically catapulted from obscure big player to leading man status by his two parents of the West, would go on to much bigger things from here on out. Mm-hmm. She's done it wrong, which is based on Mae West's own play called Diamond Lil, mm-hmm. and I'm No Angel, which she wrote, co-wrote. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, talk about a power player like Lucille Ball back in the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Highly sexualized woman, wow. Yeah. You I wouldn't mean, think it, because you look at her now, it's like, okay, you know, she's kind of short, she's like thick. No, this woman was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> very modern woman. Oh, very modern woman. Yeah, yeah, you can't watch Mae West through today's eyes. Right. Oh, unless you like thick girls who kind of like, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know. She was a turn-of-the-century figure. For 1890 or something, holy shit, she was hot, you know? <laughs> yeah, hey, I wouldn't try to then... <laughs> If it was 1933, no, of course not. If it was 1980, I don't know. No. But anyway, no. Uh, it was the second picture, though, which really catapulted Cary Grant to, like, bang status. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly he was like, neither one of these films are, like, great works of art, but they're, they're well they're to be mentioned as uh, pre-code films for Mae West. And they're fun because they didn't get to her yet. They didn't, like, yeah, answer all her lines. They, they still tried to, but not to the extent that they would later or stuff like My Little Chickadee or whatever. Well, how bloody can you get? You know, it's like, hey, how much can you push this, push this stuff? Exactly. <laughs> and and folks who are not familiar, you should you could do worse than to check out She Done Him Wrong or I'm No Angel. Yeah. You get a real glimpse of what pre-code means. Yeah. And, and, you know, she had a weird stilted delivery, but that came from years on the stage. Yeah. She would sort of purr in a strange way. She actually put out record albums. Do you remember that? Yeah. And so she'd be like, I actually had on, like, I think it was Golden Throats, the original one, where they had, like, William Shatner and Larry Nemo and all those people that really couldn't sing that put out records. And she was on there crawling her way through... I don't know. It's like some Beatles song, some Bob Dylan song. Like, oh, 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 Twist and Shout. That was it. Yeah. Come on, baby. Oh, Twist and yeah, Shout. She also <laughs> began a whole, uh, I think it was early, early to mid 60s, a rebirth in this kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, while, while you had uh, Rudy Ray Moore mm-hmm. and Blowfly doing uh, the Black. Experience or the the party records like Rusty Warren that was straight out of Mae West playbook. Rusty Moore and Bell Barth. Mm-hmm. Bell Barth was another one. Or Bell who was Barth. the filthy soul singer? They actually have a Jackson was her last name. Uh, oh, Billy. Billy Jackson. Billy. Yeah, remember that thing when she's sitting on the toilet? That's one of her album covers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the same kind of thing. I got some Billy Jackson CDs. Her live stuff is the best though, because when she's live, she's like uncensored. <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. 
Where are we going next? All right, so next, uh, 1933 still, The Eagle and the Hawk. I swear, this man's filmography may contain some of the most unwatchable films since the Wesley Snipes show, and possibly worse. Yes, Carrie was suave, he was sophisticated, at least on screen, and makes a good leading man in the right role, but what a lot of shit. Here's an example. You didn't have to watch everything, man. (laughs) This one stars scribble comedy queen and longtime personal crush Carol Lombard and Frederick March of, as I mentioned earlier, Death Takes a Holiday, Nothing Sacred with Lombard, and I Married a Witch with Veronica Lake. Directed by a Stuart Walker, also responsible for early Carol Lombard, Charles Lawton picture, White Woman, seriously, that's the name, and the highly entertaining Werewolf of London with Bernard Olin and Henry Hall. Lombard, the only real selling point here, is in this extremely briefly as a presumed lady of the evening who March hooks up with during a layoff in London. But most of the film is a boring wartime melodrama about flying aces in World War One who bicker and backstab each other, then have to rely on each other, and who eventually get killed because of their own stupidity. Grant is the effective baddie who March initially grounds, but then he's forced to fly with Grant, causes a death because he wants to go back for another hit on an enemy plane. It's just a fucking mess. People seem to love this kind of shit for some reason. I don't understand it. Unless you excise the five or ten minutes that Lombard's in the film and just watch that, it's pretty much unwatchable and easily passable. You didn't see this one, did you? Yeah, I did, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> I got this on YouTube because I, I, I wanted to try my hardest to catch everything I could. You didn't have to watch everything, man. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I yeah, tried. Well, too. not everything, but you know, no, but you here and there, like, well, I never thought of this one. It's only sixty minutes long. Like I said, so many sets. I'm like, yeah, hey, what the hell? I might as well watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like not that very long, but no. it, it wasn't very good. No. But I think since it became before I'm No Angel, which was kind of like maybe a breakthrough picture for him, mm-hmm. more or less. I had to watch it. It's, yeah, it wasn't very good. So, uh, 1934, 30 Day Princess. This is better than that, for sure. A Marion Gehring, a few credits, none of which you've ever heard of, directs Sassy Sylvia Sidney of Hedgecock Sabotage, Omen 2, and the event me amused Snow Beast as an out-of-work actress hired to pretend to be an Eastern Bloc princess on tour stateside to raise money for her impoverished postage stamp kingdom. Of course, there's some fat robber baron one percenter trying to make a big shortfall investment off of this, so he can't afford for this to fall through when the real princess gets quarantined with the mumps, hence Sidney faking it until he makes it off of her. Grant is the newspaper mogul who opposes giving them any U.S. dollars, so naturally she has to put the make on them, and naturally they fall for each other, despite it all turning out to be one huge scam. Carol Lombard did this sort of thing so much more winningly in Nothing Sacred, and more particularly The Princess Comes Across, but it's still fun if you're in the mood for this light, proto-screwball comedy sort of thing. It's not bad. I, I didn't see this one, sorry, folks. Okay. So, uh, same year, 1934, Born to be Bad. Honor and decency? That's a lot of hash. Would that ever get me? I was reared right. People told me everything except how to protect myself from the clinches. Did they ever tell me what to really expect from life? Did they ever tell me if you don't do, you're going to get done? No, they told me nothing. And what happens? First time I meet with a real problem, I went down for the count. Loretta Young, sort of a far less drag queeny Joan Crawford, is a tough street girl. <laughs> The street girl and single mother working as an escort, quote, entertaining clients for a compatriot to secure lucrative contracts, and living in the back of a bookstore whose elderly owner took her in when she showed up knocked up and with nowhere to go. The hell is that? What? Someone's like screaming in the hallway. Do you hear that? No. Is that kind of bad? I don't know. It sounds really freakish. I think it's a child, though. The rest of this is some weird attempt at, quote, I hope it's a live child. <laughs> like, ah, oh, daddy, oh. 
Yeah, Hulu Freebie. There's a couple of them like that. We just kind of search around and find weird things. Oh, yeah, but once you're in, it's almost impossible to find anything. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm like, everybody's like, oh, the great Italian movies on there. Anything I find is in Italian. No subs. I'm like, that's terrible. <laughs> it's like the old days. And the worst thing about streaming is even if they have something up there, mm. they may very well cut it. They'll have it in shit quality. If you have it in widescreen on a disc somewhere, they'll have it in full screen and looking like it's you know, an old granny beat up friend off of 42nd Street. It's Yeah, it's a mess. But you do find some weird things out there. Yeah, yeah, like the Curse of Ursula. I saw that out there. I said, how much? Okay, it's in Italian. They cut it. Why would you cut this movie? Exactly. The whole point is to see the murder weapon. (laughs) When I saw Barbara Magnolfi, I busted her about this. I was like, I hope you don't have that weapon. She's like, oh, no, not on you. (laughs) Yeah, she's posted recently a couple of weeks ago. I didn't like this movie. It's not what they told me it would be. Meanwhile, all she's <laughs> posting about is that movie. Yes, because well, that's the only thing everybody knows her from, that in Suspiria. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, anyway, about this. <laughs> and being with Mark Perel before he you know, turned yeah. junkie and died. Oh, that's nasty. Yeah, that's true. No, that's not nice. But that's who we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was already a junkie. So, kiss and make up. Yeah, so I saw it in some of the streaming things. Yo, I didn't mind it so much. Um, I didn't say I love it, but I didn't mind it so much. And and <laughs> it's hard not to dislike something that has Edward Everett Horton in it. To be honest, you know, it's this. And plus, you know, you got a lot of pretty extras running around, so it was fine. My God, Edward Everett Horton was around for like fifty decades. I, I know, at least. <laughs> and he was always playing the same character, and he, he was always likable. Yeah, he's always likable. You can't, you can't. And you can't, I'm sorry, you can't knock Cary Grant for, like, being a workhorse. Oh, no. Because, you know, I get it. The guy, you know, he hit the boards. He was doing uh, vaudeville. He was doing uh, all kinds of shit. And he just wanted to make it. You know, he, he probably came from not a great life. Mm-hmm. And like you said, he was con- He was a contract. You know, this is a paramount picture. My goodness. How many contracts does this guy have? Well, what they used to do is loan them out to other studios. Sometimes yeah, it's punishment. Like you yeah. did something wrong in the press or, you know, we didn't like you to take on your last film, so now we're going to put you out to, you know, if you were bad, they put you like PRC or one. I was like low rent. <laughs> but, you know, that was oh, how yeah, it worked. Yeah, yeah. you're going to PRC, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. No. Nah. So, I, you know, it's likable. Would you remember it the next day? No, nah, no. Nah. Like a skank girlfriend? No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, pretty appropriate considering the, the subject of the movie. So anyway, 1935, Wings in the Dark, directed by a James Flood of no notable credits. This one starts off promising with a plucky Myrna Loy as an airshow trick pilot who falls for hotshot flyer Grant, whose shtick is, quote, flying blind, i.e. he's going without air traffic support, and supposedly inventing an early autopilot feature. So far, so good. Except this isn't the pre-code action romance. It's a maudlin weepy where that quote flying blind stick turns literal because he has some dumb accident lighting a gas burner just as Lloyd convinces him to, now illegally, don't ask, fly his planned trip across the pond. The rest of the film is him blind and understandably irritated while Lloyd tries to make enough money to support them both and marry the guy. Of course, she has to do more dangerous stunts for extra cash, and he has to literally fly blind to save her. Then she has to crash into his plane to bring him down. It's all completely absurd and kind of hard to watch. It's too bad, because that first half hour was promising, and Lloyd was a tough winning dame here. It's just down to the fault of the bad script and possibly a mediocre director. (laughs) Did you see this one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. The first half was pretty good. And uh, I love the dog in this thing. Oh, the dog is so... <laughs> I 
great actor dog. Oh, yeah. Lightning, I think. Who knows? <laughs> I think that was the name of the dog. Yeah, they mentioned that yeah, in the credits. I don't know what it was. Yeah, Myrna Loy, another one that was around, another actress that was around for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. It's good, but it doesn't, it, halfway through, it becomes, I hate to use this word, maudlin. Yeah. You know, and, you know, like, it's like he, he refuses the dog at first, you know, but the dog loves him. And then he, he falls in love with the dog, you know. She falls in love with him, mm-hmm. not the dog with Carrie. <laughs> well, probably the dog as well. And she will do whatever she can to help him, if not regain his sight, to make his life better. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a bad movie, I would say, but for forever its time, it's not a bad movie. I'll put it that way. So, 1934, The Last Outpost, the incredibly sexy Kathleen Burke, the Panther Girl from Island of Lost Souls, also of Murders at the Zoo with Lionel Atwell, joins Claude Rains of The Invisible Man, Hitchcock's Notorious, and our Humphrey Bogart shows Casablanca. In this film from low-rent director Charles Barton of Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein, Abbott Costello Meet Barlow's Karloff the Killer, and here's a credit for you, all episodes of TV's Amos and Andy, I shit you not. Unfortunately, Burke is barely in this, as it's really about Reigns in Iran, technically Kurdistan, and how he is captured. Cary Grant is a British intelligence officer, and the two of them are wandering around there doing God knows what. Burke is one of the local Iranian girls that the two of them flirt with, or Grant flirts with, I don't remember. I don't understand these kind of films. Occasionally there's something that really catches my eye, like the H. Ryder Haggard adaptations, for example. But most of these sort of jungle adventure things, once you start leaving the very earliest pre-code ones, like the Naja Brushi or Black Moon, they never work for me. It's just, I don't know, it's just not a thing. Did you like this one? No, I wasn't thrilled with it. Uh, yeah, Kathleen Burke is certainly stunning. Yeah. No matter what she was in. Oh, uh, that yeah, Panther Girl stick was, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough of her. In yeah. this. It's an interesting movie. But it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it didn't work for me. Um, for me. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, Claude Rains, you know. But the thing is, though, it's it, you're going into a, you know, Cary Grant, and it's really a Claude Rains film. Yes. You know, and Grant actually has a uh, supporting role in it, to say the you know, At best, yeah. At best. So, uh, again, 1935, Sylvia Scarlet. George Cooker, whose only decent credits are the Philadelphia story and the somewhat depressing Dinner at Eight, drops this occasionally atmospheric but utterly pointless tale of tramps on the run. Hepburn, who would appear with Grant in a few other films, like the aforementioned Philadelphia story, Bringing a Baby, is the daughter of a decidedly low-rent con man and smuggler who decides to escape to another country, which, for whatever reason, forces Hepburn to masquerade as a boy. And boy, those harsh, hard-bitten, sunken cheekbones, that looks really comes to the fore as she pulls her hair back under a mugger cap and poses as a hobo for the rest of the picture. The two of them more or less get involved with a gypsy caravan come Carney group, and they hook up with Grant, another sharpster ne'er-do-well. They attempt to run schemes together, the father dies, she attempts to find romance, it's just a lot of crap. The only redeeming virtues here are the nighttime and occasionally fog-bound scenes on the ship, at the caravan, or on the train, which at least are visually aesthetic. Cooker would do much better 
better and much worse films after this. He was responsible for crap like the Sophia Loren Heller in Pink Tights and the Judy Girl in A Star is Born, for example. But this is hardly one of his more memorable films, nor does it stand out in Grant's filmography, or even honestly sit among the precious few watchable films of the shaky-headed and prissy old prude Hepburn. Even audiences at the time hated it, and quite rightly considered Hepburn box office poison around this time, so you get the picture. What did you think of it? It's funny that probably because of the title alone, a lot of people into film noir always love Sylvia Scholar. That's not a film noir. It's far from it. I don't know. I mean, there's... I always like Edmund Gwen. Remember, he was the um, the cheerful old Santa on um, Miracle on 34th Street, I believe. And um, Brian Hearn's a fine actor. I mean, there's fine people in this. Cherry's okay. Is that the best picture with Hepburn and Grant in it together. That's for sure. So I, I, I just watched it and was like, yeah, it's okay. So I found it a bit long, too, at 90 minutes, like they were stretching. All right, so 1936, Big Brown Eyes. An apartment, French maid, your own car and chauffeur. Doesn't it sound good? Too good to be true. It could be true. And all I have to do is manicure your nails? But what about the candy and perfume? Ah, eh, give the candy your chauffeur and use the perfume on yourself. Of all people, Dark Shadows Elizabeth Stoddard herself, Joan Bennett, also a secret behind the door in her Dario Argento show Suspiria, and a woman very much on the right side of history, political, socially, interestingly enough, is at her absolute winningest here as a sassy, smart-mouthed dame who takes no shit from anyone, fending off so many would-be suitors you'd never believe it, reporters, gangsters, rich fucks, and the flat-foot detective she's got a flame for, Cary Grant. It's kind of a crazy film in that Bennett is a barbershop manicurist, I guess they didn't separate them back then, who winds up as a reporter Sam's experience covering the same jewel robbery ring that Grant is after. Then both of them wind up quitting their jobs. She goes back to filing and painting nails, and that's how she cracks the case. The first filmic Michael Shane, Lloyd Nolan, also of the Mickey Spillane starring The Girl Hunters, is also on hand as one of the baddies. Directed by Roe Walsh, whose only films of note were a pair of pictures from our Humphrey Bogart show, They Drive By Night in High Sierra. It's a typical programmer of the era, but that's hardly a slag. Precode cinema was by far the best of the medium until the brief rise of a tourism and underground cinema from the late 60s through the early 80s when the corporations took over again. I enjoyed the hell out of this one, and while Bennett isn't quite what I consider one of the hotties of the era, she has a sort of Joan Blondell, Glenda Farrell pluck and personality appeal that pushes her up several notches in my estimation. I liked her in Dark Shadows, I appreciated her more in Secret Behind the Door, but this? This is the first time I really dug her. The kid's all kind of alright. So, did you see this one? Yeah, yeah, it's good, good. It's, uh, yeah, she was kind of alternately sultry and mm-hmm. alternately... Uh, tough as nails. Tough as nails, which is, uh, kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the Joan Bennett persona that we knew mm-hmm. decades later. Grant's okay in this, uh, you know, playing a, a PO, a police officer. He's never good playing cops. No. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. Lloyd Nolan, nice to see Lloyd. Another guy who was around for 200 years. <laughs> um, gosh, that guy was around for so many, so many, so many Yeah, years. I actually did something very recently over at Third Eye, a little piece on the connection between Lloyd Nolan, Hugh Beaumont, who is the fellow that was eventually Ozzy's father and Ozzy and Harry, I believe. I like and, Hugh Beaumont, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there was one other thing that was, there's three connections to uh, actors that you would never picture together, and yet they, oh, Jack Webb from Dragnet. So it's worth taking a look if you're interested. There's a whole story about that. You usually see your stuff. I didn't see that one. Oh, that sounds really? fun. Really? I'll point you to it, yeah. Yep. I'll send you a link. 
Why you're busy? <laughs> like me, like me, I'm writing. It was one of the last things I did before I had to go in for this uh, procedure. <laughs> procedure. Uh, what's next? All right. So next up, 1936, The Amazing Adventure, also known over in England apparently as The Amazing Quest of Ernest Bliss for our UK audience. Oh. The Amazing Adventure is the better known U.S. cut of UK melodrama, The Amazing Quest of Ernest Bliss. Grant is a rich prick with so much time in his hands, he imagines he has some disease or something. His pissed-off doctor snarkily informs him that the only problem he has is too much money. So rather than doing something charitable with it, the dope bets him he can live on whatever he earns despite having no degree or experience. Good luck, buddy. Mary Bryan of the William Powell Philo Advanced the Canary Murder Case is the secretary at the first place he lands a job, a bankruptcy-headed stove company as a door-to-door salesman, which he sucks at. So he does what rich folks do, invests a bunch of his own money, which he gets away with on a caveat, to set up a big homeless shelter giving away free meals cooked on the stoves, hoping this will somehow land investors, and it actually happens. Then he leaves the job and becomes a chauffeur while still banging Bryan. He gets solicited by a passenger to get in on a fraud scheme, which turns out to be on himself. His butler blew his wad on the racetrack and wound up renting Grant's place to some con man who's now forging checks and plans to use Grant as a look-like face of himself to help milk his money dry. Meantime, Brian finds out that Grant's mother is dying and thinks he needs money to help, so she pimps herself out to the nearest rich guy before Grant steps in and saves it for himself. Presumably the year is up. Yay. Holy fey, no wonder this one's forgotten. Did you see this? No, I'm sorry. I didn't see this one. I wasn't able to to watch it. All right, so same year, 1936, Wedding Present. This is a good one. A Richard Wallace of No Notable Credits directs another pairing of Joan Bennett with Grant. This time, they're His Girl Friday-style fellow reporters who work as a team and have a snappy relationship on and off the job. There's really not much to the story here, just plenty of early screwball comedy silliness as they bicker, she earns a month vacation on a pair of big stories they both broke because the paper can't spare both of their top scoops, seriously. He gets promoted to city editor and then changes from a fun-loving, if clever and talented layabout to an uptight, tyrannical middle manager type, and she leads a de facto staff rebellion and resigns in disgust. She winds up engaged to a stuffy rich prick who's a Tony Robbins-type self-help bullshit huckster. Uh, Grant's gangster pals kidnap them both and the justice of the peace to marry them both by force, which fails mine, so a drunken Grant calls in about a dozen separate emergency calls to their address to interrupt the impending nuptials. I shit you not. It's loads of fun if you dig these old silly screwball comedies. Damn, two in a row from Bennett. I always kind of liked her doe-eyed blonde sister Constance, but after seeing Joan in her heyday and these two Grant pictures, she's all right in my book. I have to say Holiday, this one, and Big Brown Eyes were the real surprises of the show. By far my favorites of the films I had to revisit here, though objectively speaking, none of them are on the same level of craftsmanship as some of the Hitchcock films and the Philadelphia story for whatever that's worth. But yeah, this was a really nice one. It's definitely, if you're going to check anything out that you haven't heard of here, check this one out for sure. What's your take? No, it's really a lot of fun. I I, I have a soft spot screwball comedies. Yeah. I don't see them that often, and so things like this force me to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I used to watch them a lot. Yeah, me too. You know, growing up, and, and uh, well, my wife loves them too. So I, I watched them so many times, and this is. But you know, it's been a while, like you said. It's been a while. There's so much to watch, and you just burn the age of binge watching. You know, mm-hmm. hey, the new series is on. You can watch them all right now. <laughs> <laughs> And there's like 30 hours out of your fucking life. <laughs> so, anyway, I enjoyed this. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned that about Joan Bennett. You know, like uh, a lot of people only know Joan Bennett from Dark Shadows or, of course, Suspira. And many years previous, 
know, she she was really good. And this, uh, ever seen a, a less adenoyable, less annoying at least, Catherine Hepburn? Yes, yes, much better than that. Like I said, I'm thinking of her more along the lines of, uh, was it Joan Blondell or Glenda Farrell? Especially in these films, I was like, okay, you know, that they're not like the most gorgeous girls on earth, but they've got this kind of personality that's oh, tough and winning. Not, and, yeah, they yeah. don't have to be. They, they just, they have this talent. They have this thing where you're basically going to fall in love with them, even though they're just, you know, I guess if you're going to be objective, they would be like a 3.5 or something, you know, but they, they turn out much yeah. better because of who they are, which is the important thing in life, you know? Ooh. you got to live with people. Uh, you got, you got to find somebody that's actually good for you, not just somebody you think looks good. Anyway. Story of my life. <laughs> Sometimes you're really lucky and you get both like I did, but that's another story. <laughs> I'm always, I like thank God every day. I'm like, yes, thank you. Uh, so 1936, Topper. Norman Z. McLeod of the Marx Brothers Horse Feathers and one or two Bob Hope films directs Roland Young of Madam Satan, which I reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com. In the original King Solomon's Minds, he's the titular nebbish married to the annoying Billy Burke of Dinner at Eight, a woman once courted by none other than the great Enrico Caruso and the wife of Florence Ziegfeld of Ziegfeld Follies fame, believe it or not. Aided, quote-unquote, by a de facto F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda-type fun-loving jazz-age rock and tour couple who drunkenly crashed their roadster and are now ghosts, hoping for redemption and release thereby. A lady I always had a bit of a thing for in early cinema, Constance Bennett, who I just mentioned recently, is the elegant post-flapper type, and Grant is the ne'er-do-well hubby. And my man Eugene Paletta, my man Godfrey, the Wolfman, and several Philo Vance films with William Powell and Warren William, is the hotel detective investigating Young, who sees, and then doesn't see, Grant and Bennett as they cause all kinds of chaos. Even Ward Bond of Hitler Dead or Alive cameos, there's one for you. It's similar if far inferior to Noel Coward's witty and somewhat decadent blithe spirit, just softened up and dumbed down a bit for a postcode American audience, but it's still loads of fun and the spectral effects and double images are surprisingly well done for the era. Grant and Bennett really make the picture. Unfortunately, it was enough of a hit to inspire two sequels without Grant, the third with a by-then-aged-out Joan Blondell, not quite at the stage of life we saw her in our Elvis show Stay Away Joe, but far from the sassy screwball ingenue off-pair with a similarly inclined Glenda Torchy Blaine Farrell, who I just mentioned, of 10 or 15 years prior. Stick with the original, then go watch Blythe Spirit and see how it's supposed to be done. Plus, you get the only Miss Marple worth watching, Margaret Rutherford, as a dotty psychic in that one. But this topper's still fun. It's, it's not as good as Blythe Spirit by any means, but our two ghosts are winning very much so, and it's fun. So what's your take? My God, it's going to be a long show. <laughs> uh, so to- Topper is a lot of fun. No, you know, a supernatural comedy film. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have great chemistry. Yes. And and uh, that that's, a, you know, when you when Constance Bennett, Cary Grant, when your leads have great chemistry. Everything falls into place. That works. You know, you know, Billy Burke, Roland Young as the sort of undead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're fine. You know, it's uh, can't fault this film. No, it's a fun One thing of note you mentioned, though, is that there were sequels which didn't have anybody from the film. Yeah. Which was just kind of weird because if you have a movie that's really popular... Why would you not bring the cast back? Yeah, even something like the Thin Man movies, where by the time you got to the third one, they really boulderized it, and they brought in the kid, and they made him very safe. It was still, you know, William Powell and Myrna Loy, so, or at least they're bringing the cast over, and I think they brought some of the thugs over that were his pals. Here, it's just like, they dropped their... Okay, Constance Bennett went to the second movie, but that's it? Really? <laughs> that's why they don't work. The first one works. The other two, no. 
Orson Welles says. So, same year, 1936, The Awful Truth. Leo McCary, who directed the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup, had two more solid comedies in him, this being the last one he directed, before slipping into maudlin Catholic guilt and sentimentality with Bells of St. Mary's, Going My Way, and An Affair to Remember. But he also wrote and produced My Favorite Wife, so his younger days were far, far better than his latter. Irene Dunn, who'd go from old dark house thriller of 13 women to a handful of screwball comedies like Theodora Goes Wild, My Favorite Wife, and this one, is the snappy divorcee of a suspicious Grant who finds her spending extra hours with her voice instructor on a day where he was supposed to be out of town on business. The rest of the film is the two of them messing with other people, Grant with a dumb stripper and society rich bitch type, and Dunn with her doofus farm boy neighbor, the perpetual cuckold Ralph Bellamy of Carefree and His Girl Friday, who plays his annoying aw shucks role to the hilt. Naturally, they're throwing themselves into rebound relationships because they're still hot for each other, and the usual screwball comedy antics ensue. It's cute, though it probably would have worked better with a more vivacious leading lady and a wittier pre-code-style script, like the slightly bolderized but still quite entertaining gay divorcee with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. If you enjoy the genre and era, you should like this one as well. I couldn't see this one for the show. Really? But you've seen it before. Well, no, I, huh? I saw it years ago, but I wanted to see it recently, and so I, my memory is a little shoddy on this one, so. That's too bad. It's a good one. So, 1938, Bringing Up Baby. Howard Hawks gives shaky-headed Catherine Hepburn the role of her career <laughs> in this unrelentingly crazed screwball comedy classic. With Barry Fitzgerald of the definitive Christie adaptation, and then there were none, and Charlie Ruggles of Murder at the Zoo in bit parts, this one features Grant as a stuffy paleontologist of all things, about to marry into money. Fortunately or no, his attempt to hobnob with the goober smoochers on some pre-Saudi golf course runs afoul of madcap heiress Hepburn, in a role usually associated with the likes of Carol Lombard, think My Man Godfrey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, or Nothing Sacred Among Many, Barbara Stanwyck, The Mad Miss Matten, Bull of Fire, etc., or Ginger Rogers, Carefree particularly comes to mind here, but there's several with us there and others. Unlike her later work, Hepburn's scatterbrained, absurd, a Marx Brothers-worthy force of chaos and anarchy, and consequently loads of fun. Even beyond the nonsense and the links, she inveigles herself into his fuddy-duddy life, starting with having to harbor an imported leopard, which causes all manner of nonsense, made even worse by Hepburn's falling for Grant, and her doing her damnedest to sabotage his impending nuptials so that she can teach him to embrace chaos and all the -the in-the-moment vibrancy, life, and fun that that brings, a lesson far too many of us need to learn. Hell, I think I finally taught my wife it took years. The funny thing about this is, my wife loved this film from the first time I showed it to her, but even to this day, my memory was colored more by my general distaste for Hepburn and the whole leopard stick, which doesn't play as big of a part as you expect. Holiday, which I'd never seen before, was by far the bigger surprise and left me with an unexpected appreciation for her, at least in that film. But this one's much crazier and far more typical, if not template, screwball comedy, far more so than the more mannered likes of the Philadelphia story or the aforementioned Holiday ever could be. I enjoyed the hell out of it, like most anarchic comedies of the sale. Did you see this one? I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Howard Hawks was uh, interesting. He's an unsung director of... Uh... Oh, I love him because he, uh, he was involved, even though he wasn't the listed director on The Thing from Outer Space, the original one. He did yeah, His yeah. Girl Friday. There's a lot of films that he does. A lot of films. And, you know, the thing the guy was very talented for, and he probably was, working... I, I haven't done this, dug this deeply into him, he probably was working for journalism mm-hmm. and, and probably working for newspaper at some point. So he probably got his lingo, yes. his naturalism lingo. And, and the thing I love about Howard Hawks' movie 
people talk over one another. Yes, I was going to say it's like us, but even more so. Like, you're hyped up, you got three people in the room. Yeah, it's like if you got three people in the room and everybody's like really invested in the subject. Like, oh, yeah, but what about this? And, oh, yeah, you hear this? Oh, yeah, but I know that. But how about... And everybody's talking over each other. And it's just like this rapid fire thing that, okay, by today's standards, maybe it's not as you know fast paced as it used to be. But back then it was like, holy shit, how do you follow this, you know, without subtitles or right, something? Right, 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 yeah. It's, it's like, holy shit, how do you follow this? And it's so naturalist mm-hmm. and naturalistic. And he was really good at that. Yes. And, you know, as a director, I mean, that's why the the thing, you know, the original Hawks thing is, like, one of the best pictures. And that's why Carpenter's version works well, because it tries to emulate that. Yes. And it does very successfully. But, yeah, despite what this movie's about and its ridiculousness, <laughs> it's a screwball comedy, but it's a screwball comedy that is very endearing and, and it's ridiculous, but, you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I actually, it is a screwball comedy very much so, but I don't really peg it like the usual screwball comedy, like I mentioned, like the Carol Lombard films before, or the mm. Barbara Stanwyck films or whatever. It's more like a Marx Brothers film, especially the early ones, where it was just like, you didn't know what the hell was going to happen. What was that one? Was that the Night at the Opera, Day at the Races, when they're out there and all of a sudden somebody throws a peek and ease at somebody just for the hell of it? And it's like, absolute chaos for no reason. It's like Carpal Marx came into the room. And there's, oh, you're right. You, yeah. you know, yeah. And that's what this film is, and that's why it works so well. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, next year is another one that was like a key point for me in the show. Like, holy shit, this is really good. Holiday. (laughs) It's funny. When I was doing this script, because I had started it before this procedure, but, you know, I really couldn't type. I'm starting to be able to type at least on my phone, but not enough to do reviews or whatever. But here, I was using like a... (laughs) I learned how to use the voice thing. So it types a lot of stuff, and some of it is exactly what you wrote, and some of it's crazy. That's why you hear me doing hesitation sometimes. Like, how'd that come out? I didn't catch it all. But this one here... I had dropped the phone or something, and I was like, ah, fuck you. So it literally says here, the first thing is, fuck you, <laughs> with, no, with no punctuation. So, yes, the, my review for Holiday, fuck you. Uh, George Cooker, who'd worked this basic scenario on our leads much better in the Philadelphia story, drops this story of middle-class drone Grant falling for Doris Nolan, whose only notable credit was our Richard Harris and David Hemming show's juggernaut decades later, who turns out to be a rich bitch. He's uncomfortable with the whole situation of marrying into this family and their money-minded ways, and plans, like any sane person, to stop struggling for peanuts in the corporate world, which baffles and upsets them to no end. Luckily for him, he falls in with the black sheep of the family, drunken Lou heirs of our John Saxon show's Earth 2, our Go Ape show's Bow for the Planet of the Apes, and our Toby Hooper show's Salem's Lot, and a surprisingly uncharacteristic Catherine Hepburn. Cougar must have brought something out of the shaky-headed prude, dragging a pair of winning performances out of the rich bitch socialite turned actress. Yes, seriously. Quite unlike anything else in her career in the lovable Philadelphia story and here, where she's a fellow free spirit rebelling against their money-grubbing right-wing values. Ayers is the weakest of the three, a broken lush for falling in line with values that clearly don't align with his own, but he gradually reveals himself as father confessor and support base to the growing relations and much better suited match of outspoken black sheep Hepburn and working man who's had enough of the Horatio Alger lie and wants to live more fully grand. And while not exactly what most folks would consider a classic of the type, Hepburn, Ayers, and Grant have never been so winning, particularly as Ayers begins to sober up a bit and reclaim his true identity, shedding the defeated shell of a man conforming to the hegemony of unregulated capitalism and the weight of the robber baron, to return to his music and become a sort of supportive father figure to his sister in her ideal match. 
Edward Everett Horton is always loads of fun, particularly in all his Astaire Rogers pictures, but here he and his filmic wife play a semi-literal benevolent parental role to both Grant and Hepburn, serving as a sort of example of how to live and grow old together without giving in to the oppression of a Puritan worth ethic and a dull, serious life in pursuit of things that don't really matter. Even Henry Daniello, Sherlock Holmes in Washington, and Moriarty in The Woman in Green, and the Philadelphia story drops in at one point. It's not perfect by any means, but damn, was it refreshing. And all those crazy backflips and acrobatic maneuvers that Grant does, one with Hepper in mind on his shoulders, are pretty damn surprising to watch. Anyone not getting the news from questionable sources managed by Rupert Murdoch, Steve Bannon, or some variant of the American Nazi Party should find some strong identification with that trio of existentially authentic rebels against wage slavery and societal mores. I like this one a lot. What was your take? Did you see it? It's surprisingly good, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, although, around this I'm watching a lot of Cary Grant movies, by the way, at this point in time. <laughs> I, I get kind of tired of watching him play alcoholic. Yes. Or someone verging on alcoholism. I mean, he does it well, but it's like he's successful. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he always plays a successful alcoholic. Where the fuck do you find these people? So, <laughs> well, they're probably out there. But anyway, this, yeah, I have to agree with you on this. It's, it's one of the, and I'd say, infinitesimal, infinitesimal, but one of the very few Catherine Hepburn films where I didn't mind her so much. Yeah, it's like this one bringing a baby in the Philadelphia story, and that's really it for me. Otherwise, it's like she, she was a prude in real life. She had a big stink about it. what movie was it that she was starring in, and she didn't like it because she didn't think the, the moral values of it were right or some shit because someone was sleeping around. I'm like, really, lady? Yeah, but you know, you know, I think a lot of that was show and tell. It's very possible. I think a lot of that was show and tell because... Because I think Spencer Tracy was pretty loose, and she was with him for years. Yeah, and, and that's a whole other story. Yeah. But anyway, the persona and whatever the hell she was putting off was always like, ugh. But these three films, I'm like, I like her. I'm, I'm actually surprised. I'm like, wow, I actually like some Catherine Hepburn stuff. I mean, I knew about the Philadelphia story, but these two were surprised. That's good. That's nice. Where are we going? Gunga Din? So, Gunga Din, 1939. One of those old questionable imperialist adventure films like Zulu, this one sounds a lot better on paper than it actually turns out to be. Grant and his men are sent out to an Imperial regiment post to see why all contact has been lost, only to find the town deserted and themselves attacked by tug assassins. They have a sycophantic coolie who's such a bootlicker and race traitor that he not only aids his British overlords, but desperately wants to become one of them as a fully decorated soldier in their army. Holy shit, is this John Leguizamo in friggin' Land of the Dead or what? Worse... He helps him loot his own people when he hears of a tomb filled with jewels, but it turns out to be the Tug Temple. Grant is captured and tortured. Din escapes to bring in the cavalry. There's a big fight, and Din is killed. They bury him with honors and posthumously induct him into the British Army. Yay? George Stevens of Swing Time directs, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. of Loose Ankles, which I reviewed over at thirdassumer.wordpress.com, and Precious Little Else till his geriatric turn in 1981's Ghost Story appears, and, quote, sex goddess <coughs> Joan Fontaine, the fuddy-duddy of Hitchcock's Suspicion and Rebecca, as well as Hammer's The Witches, also appears briefly, if not nominally, to keep this from being a blatant sausage fest. It's the sort of film where the very Desi title character is portrayed by the very Yiddish Sam Jaffe, so you get the picture. By the way, quote, those portions of this picture dealing with the worship of the goddess Kali are based on historic fact, end quote. <laughs> what was your take on this one? Oh, 
it's it's perfectly fine. I mean, it's uh, it's a bit much. At, yeah, you know, that's for even, sure. Even for its time period, it's two hours long, 1939. The thing about this kind of movie is, back in those days, people always liked your movies to end happy. Yes. And this movie did not end happy. Neither did any of the remakes or variations of the picture. You know, they tried to redo this many times, many times. And I liked it. I have, I have to say, it's, it's a all, all hands on, all hands in kind of big adventure, British adventure. I mean, look, you got Doug Fairbanks Jr., you know, who's a holdover from the old days. Richard McLaughlin, yeah, Sam Jaffe, okay, we yeah, have Sam Jaffe. <laughs> Sam Jaffe, who was a renowned theater, well, he is what's interesting to me. He was a renowned American theater director and actor who and teacher. And so he had a studio, I think it was, uh, I forgot, West Coast to East Coast, mm-hmm. where new actors, he was like, you know, like it's sort of like a... Strasburg and the Method? Yes, yes, thank you. It was sort of like that, and, and like a lot of people worked with Chaffee. So I'm so surprised. I saw this way back when, and I saw it again for the show. So surprised, it's like he's working in body makeup. Yeah. Yeah, and, and okay, you know, you want to get paid? <laughs> <laughs> it was common for the era, but it's just it's kind of tacky, especially with the, the script of this thing being so wrong-headed. It's kind of tacky, yeah, but... It's, it's it's a time of high adventure. So, 1939, Only Angels Have Wings. The great Howard Hawks, very likely my favorite old Hollywood director and man behind everything from 20th century, Bowl of Fire and His Girl Friday to where Humphrey Bogart chose to have and have not, The Big Sleep and The Thing, manages to evoke the sweaty, testosterone-driven jungle feel of red dust, which is one of my favorites, in this swaggering tale of puddle jumper flyers for hire. Grant is at his manliest here, pushing around old flame Rita Hayworth of Charlie Chan in Egypt, Gilda and Orson Welles Lady from Shanghai, not to mention her crazy old lady turn on our French crime show's Road to Selena, and inflaming the passions of an unusually horny Gene Arthur of the Warner Olin Return of Dr. Fu Manchu, an all-around likable plucky screwball comedian of the era. She did several screwball comedies at that time. The actual plot of this is somewhat tired, if not yawn-inducing melodrama. Grant is the tough boss of the company, sending his pilots out to deliver mail and such like in all sorts of hazardous tropical conditions. Some die, he takes in a few strays with bad reputations, they ultimately get put in their place to redeem themselves fatally, you know the draw. But what makes this work is the combination of Hawk's flair for realistic dialogue, where everyone interrupts and talks over each other, like we mentioned before, and the palpable claustrophobic feel of a bunch of derelict tough guys trying to prove themselves and make a quick buck, complicated by the arrival of nightclub singer Chantou's Arthur, who flirts with and falls hard for the decidedly Clark Gable-esque Grant character, a role that you'd think was a million miles out of his ballpark, but he manages to pull it off here. Made even worse by a broken-down ex-pilot looking for work who has ties to one of Grant's employees and whose wife Hayworth is Grant's ex. The ladies, particularly Hayworth, don't get enough screen time for my taste, but Arthur is lovably feisty and believably smitten, and Hayworth, holy shit, 
It's been said that this film took a floundering career of eye candy bit parts and turned her into the big time sex symbol that found its apotheosis in Gilda and apparently ruined many a relationship she fell into. She famously lamented, they all went to bed with Gilda and woke up with me. But in her few brief scenes, particularly the rather red dust like late night. I was up in bed with you? That's it. They all went to bed with her with Gilda and went up with her. But in a few brief scenes, particularly the rather red dust like late night bar scene where Grant dumps water on her head to quote cool her off. You can see why this one brought her to popular attention. And beyond that, there's plenty of night set, ramp swept atmosphere, and almost siege picture mentality where everyone's holed up in the local bamboo construction bar awaiting flying orders, and an underlying tension that leaves the viewer strangely on edge, knowing that something's about to explode in either sexual tension or violence. And fascinatingly, while he keeps dancing on edge play, Hawks never really lets it get to that point, leaving a simmering menace and barely unconsummated passions boiling throughout. Red Dust is one of my favorite Hollywood films ever lens, so you know this sort of thing is right up my alley. It's post-Haze Code, so it doesn't quite go where it should, but Hawks plays it as close as you can imagine under such uptight restrictions. Surprisingly good for a melodrama programmer, and very uncharacteristic for not only Arthur, but especially for Grant. I wonder if Gable is the original intended lead, because this is as close to Gable as anyone else ever got. I like this one. What was your take? Yeah, yeah, it's very close to, uh, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, maybe this was intended for Clock Gable because uh, it's suspiciously, suspiciously like a Clock Gable film. Mm-hmm. But we carry Grant in the lead. But Grant is more than, you know, Howard Hawks. So, you know, Hawks had worked with uh, Grant before, and it just works. I think it's a little too long. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, Gene Arthur's pretty Tim terrific in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Really nice cast of not too familiar faces. Richard Bothlemess is another holdover from the silent era. So it was nice to see the guy in this. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was another one of those guys like uh, John Gilbert, mm-hmm. who uh, was uh, really popular in the silent era, who tried to cross over. And like somebody said, well, you know, your voice isn't too bad. Okay, you could do talkies. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, it's an okay film, not a terrible film, not a great film. So, 1939 also, in name only. Another maudlin weepy. This one wastes one of my favorite golden age of Hollywood ladies, the gorgeous and endearing screwball comedy stand by Carol Lombard, as the other woman in this tired tale of a man stuck married to a gold digger and social climber, the detestable Kay Francis, who refuses to give up her social position by letting him divorce her to be with Lombard. Now, we don't talk this genre or era much, but I really love pre-code cinema and the screwball comedy genre that ran straight through to the early 40s. Gene Harlow, Myrna Lloyd, and Faye Ray were early favorites of mine, as well as folks like Clark Gable, William Powell, Warren William, and occasionally even Claudette Colbert, but Carol Lombard was always and remains very likely my favorite star of pre-1960s cinema, female. I have seen and owned dozens of her films with various directors and co-stars, and even in different genres, and I still warn you off this one. The entire plot of this one, not already described here and above, is that Lombard walks away from her relationship with Grant because she refuses to remain living just as someone's mistress, leaving Grant to psychosomatically fall seriously ill. When she tries to visit him in hospital, Francis Cock blocks her, only to blurt out in front of Grant's rich parents why she really married him. Cue happy ending, if he survives anyway. I have no idea why this kind of shit seemed to be the go-to for code era Hollywood, at least when trying to tap the Lonely Housewives market. At least radio shows promised them exotic adventure like Omar, Wizard of Persia, or Chandu the Magician. But this shit? I just don't get it. So, did you see this one? No. Good. <laughs> Lucky you. 
1940, His Girl Friday. Howard Hawks gender swaps the old Adolf Manjou comedy talkie the front page and winds up with pure gold. Rosalind Russell of the Gable Harlow classic China Seas and the William Powell Harlow Reckless gets the role of her career as Hildy Johnson, the estranged and soon-to-be ex-wife and former reporter and the newspaper editor Grant. She's trying to break things off for good with her past and marry continual cinema cuck Ralph Bellamy of Carefree and the Awful Truth to settle down to a boring life as a suburban housewife. But Grant isn't just still in love with her, he wants a star reporter and de facto sidekick back. The rest of the film is his trying to sabotage her marrying the hapless Bellamy, who Grant keeps framing and having sent to jail, and her getting an exclusive on a mistaken identity murder case, where the accused winds up breaking into her office waving a gun around, then being hidden in a roll-top desk while all sorts of people crowd the place. Eventually, they manage to get a governor's reprieve on the accused and force the obviously Republican mayor and sheriff whose, quote, law and order ticket is riding on the coattails of nailing the supposed killer to lay off everyone, and our heroes get married all over again. For the time, it's pretty feminist. Russell's every inch Grant's equal and takes no shit from anyone. It takes a lot for her to realize that she wouldn't have Grant in her own life any other way. Hawks made his name on films like this with some high-speed realistic dialogue where everyone is speaking to each other and over each other and firing out interjections all at once. We live at a strangely fast pace nowadays, but for decades, this was considered some seriously high-speed dialogue, and to this day, you really can't let it run without paying rapt attention or you'll miss a hell of a lot. The wife and I always liked this one, and while the front page was a fun talkie, Hawks took a polished gem and handed back a diamond with his updated sassy female War of the Sexist style retake on the same story. This is a really good film if you haven't seen it. So, what's your take? Which one is this? His Girl Friday. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's okay. You're, you're like a guy in speed tonight. <laughs> No, it's a good one. It's got that Howard Hawks touch. I've got that Howard Hawks thing going tonight. That's what happened. got the Howard Hawks thing going tonight, buddy. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I can't add anything to what you already said. It's If you've not seen these films, you should. Yeah. There, There's a reason why they're... Considered classics? Venerated? Yeah, well, there's a reason why they're so beloved, because they're very naturalistic. It's like how people talk. Or as close as how people really talk. Mm-hmm. It's possible, yeah. It's possible. I I, I just love that the uh, Rosalind, Rosalind, Carrie Grant. I, I actually like them better than Grant and Hepper. Oh yeah. Yeah, they just they just have this this bang up kind of fucking. Uh, yeah, the closest thing I saw to this one in terms of his filmography and good pairings was the Joan Bennett films that we mentioned earlier, and yeah. even that's not quite here. Yeah, no, this is a good one. This is a good one. This is a really good one. And you don't need us to tell you that. You could just research it. And, yeah. uh, it's like universally beloved, yeah. yeah. So, uh, 1940, My Favorite Wife, directed by Garson Kanan, who wrote our Tony Curtis show's The Rat Race. Sultry Gail Patrick, the sexy older sister of my man Godfrey, goth girl from Death Takes a Holiday, and the Phantom Broadcast is the other wife in this tale of unintentional bigamy, where ex-Irene Dunn is lost during an archaeological expedition, during which time Grant, believing her dead, remarries the far more attractive Patrick. Dunn, for her part, seems both wittingly bemused and rather unconcerned by the whole affair, in her most winning performance of her career, actually. 
Patrick is baffled and eventually rightfully pissed off, and the whole film comes off strangely sophisticated and pre-code worthy, except for the Midwestern housewife-friendly concessions presumably added in document of the script, like how Z-grade cowboy programmer star and Republican fuck Randolph Scott, only notable for his early horror roles in the Najibri Shee, Lionel Atwater's Moors of the Zoo, and Carol Lombard's Supernatural, who spent seven years on an island with Dunn and literally called her Eve to his Adam, supposedly never consummated their relationship, and how Grant and Patrick similarly supposedly never consummated their relationship. Yeah, right. Grow up already. If this were filmed about six or seven years prior, it would have been a great tour de force. As it is, it's entertaining as hell, but it's compromised and a whole hell of a lot safer than likely intended. Especially given <laughs> Grant and Randall Scott's very possible uh, relationship there, as we mentioned earlier. So what's your take on this one? Yeah, it's entertaining. It's uh, as a lot of the films in this filmography all that, that we've been talking positive about. It's very entertaining. He's he's caught in it. Cary Grant is caught in a shtick by now. Yes. He's, he's caught in this thing where the, they, they haven't so much cast him as the Laos husband or the Laos boyfriend, not yet. Laos being prick. Yeah. <laughs> but they're very close to doing that. Mm-hmm. And so this, he's still being being cast in these screwball comedies. And luckily, he always he's got a good supporting cast or a mm-hmm. fine supporting cast. Is Randolph Scott again? What's up with that? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you can read into this as you will. <laughs> I've been done. There's been a hardcore stage actress for many many years and many many years to come. It's interesting, as especially in this, but she she comes across as a little dowagery, like maybe a little too old for this role. That's my take. Yeah, I, I always found her kind of stiff. It's one of those people, she's one of those ones that I always joke about, like, oh, yeah, sex goddess there, because she's so, like you said, dowdy and plain Jane-ish and very kind of, I don't want to say overly prim, but, you know, not, not exactly what you would consider like a hot date. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1940 again, the Philadelphia story. Seems a little cold for the South Parlor. I rather expected to find pickaninnies and banjos. Whew. And on that bit of vintage Americana, yes, that really is dialogue for now. George Cooker of Dinner at Eight and Holiday brings Grant and Hepburn together for the third and final time in this comedy of manners among the jet set. Grant is the ex of, get this, and try not to laugh every time they say it, Tracy Lords. Insert your own comment here, but that's where the infamous porn queen turned John Waters regular, 90s club shantoos, and frequent film and reality TV cameo, hello celebrity wife swap, got her name. See also Jerry Butler and Lois Harris, among others. So anyway, Tracy Lords is a bit of a sarcastic bitch who is extremely judgmental and biting about everyone, which is why Grant left her in the first place, now engaged with some new money clown with a bad Madonna horror complex. Henry Daniello of Rathbone and Bruce Films, The Voice of Terror, Dressed to Kill, and Sherlock Holmes in Washington, and Charlie Channel's Castle in the Desert, is the tabloid ragman who six nasty reporters Jimmy Stewart, mostly notable for his trio of Hitchcock films, The Man Who Knew Too Much of Vertigo and Rear Window, but also the anti-beatnik diatribe Bill Book and Candle, and the absurd Mr. Hopstick of Occasion, and snippy Ruth Hussey of Another Thin Man and the Uninvited on them, to get a scoop on the big society wedding, and they offer a sarcastic, salt-of-the-earth piss on those high finance nonsense throughout. 
The Stuart Rule was the only thing improved on in the abysmal high society covered in our Frank Sinatra show, as Old Blue Eyes was far more suited to this sort of blue-collar flip-the-bird-to-the-rich role than stammering Midwestern Jimmy Stewart ever was. Realizing her new beau is something of a simp and has some weird Catholic fixation on her being some weird edible archetype of pure womanhood rather than wanting her as the flawed of amusing human being she actually is, Hepburn starts to fall for the uncharacteristically snarky Stuart. By comparison, he's a fucking gem, so you can't blame her. But Stuart finally figures out Hussey's hot for him and leaves Hepburn to remarry Grant, who's been sniffing around and welcomed home with open arms by the rest of the family and staff throughout. It's pretty damn silly, but it's fun old Hollywood stuff. Not as realistic, sexy, or biting as it would have been if it were Lens pre-cold, but definitely a classic of its day and well worth the watch. I always like this one. What's your take? It's fun. It's, uh... <laughs> well, James Stewart, you know, James Stewart was always, uh... Oh, well, 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 well. oh shucks. All right, all right. <laughs> no, he was a very interesting guy as an actor, and then I tell you, the only one I was really, really super impressed, and, you know, he did TV and did movies, was Rear Window, mm. which uh, turned out to be one of my favorite Hitchcock films, only because uh, there's a lot involved with that. Hitchcock likes to subvert people, so he actually made people I didn't like, like, not, not so much Cary Grant, because I like him anyway, but uh, Jimmy Stewart or Grace Kelly or mm. Ingrid Bergman makes them interesting all of a sudden because he makes them more realistic and they've got darker sides and sexual impulses and they're not necessarily trustworthy. They're not this paragon of virtue like they make them in Hollywood. So, yeah, there is a difference there. Those, those films are all good that he did with uh, Yeah, Hitchcock. yeah, yeah. True, 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 true indeed. I, I'm not a huge fan of this movie. I know a lot of people like it. I, yeah, I, I, I just wasn't. I just wasn't a huge fan of it. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I can see that. Uh, so, 1941, Penny Serenade, which apparently he was nominated Academy Award for Best Actor. Don't ask me. George Stevens of our Rock Hudson shows perfectly hideous and strangely overpraised giant delivers a dyed-in-the-wool, old-fashioned women's weepy. Yes, another one of these. Irene Dunn of Screwball Comedy's Theodore Goes Wild, The Awful Truth of My Favorite Wife, is the record shop girl wooed by itinerant ne'er-do-well Grant, a charmer who's been a bit of a dreamer without a real career, though he seems to wind up working for or running newspapers several times over the years. He picks her up by making her spin a huge pile of albums for him in the listening booth, buying a lot for her time despite not having a Victrola, which he further uses to worm his way into her apartment in pants. She follows him all the way to Japan because she's been knocked up by their tryst, which serves for a few minutes on a nice set and the bizarre visual of a big Irish broad walking around all day in a kimono, if you can believe that, only to lose the kid and apparently her ability to have any more during an earthquake. Can you believe this shit so far? Good, because now it really goes off the rails. Well, she frets about money in the future, and he remains happy-go-lucky till this point. All of a sudden, everything goes downhill, and they more or less wind up falling out of love. Why? Because they didn't have a real job? Because they weren't attracted to each other or seemingly devoted to each other? No, because they keep trying and failing to adopt and raise various brats, like the one they raised for a year, only to lose when his newspaper venture goes under. Really? Yeah, this whole thing wasn't even some nonsense about how tough life is if you aren't some rich scumbag or kiss enough ass and eat enough shit to climb the corporate ladder like you may expect from the first half. It was all about fitting in with the Joneses because life has no meaning if you don't pump out or buy yourself brats. I have no words for this fundamentally wrong-headed bullshit. What a piece of crap. Did you see this one? 
Actually, no, I didn't. I, oh. So would you consider splitting this into two? Oh, you mean like uh, do the next half tomorrow or something? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, because because it's so long. <laughs> We're up to 41, and, and, and then the CV gets like... Strange. Yeah, and then it's like uh, after like 1950, he works every few years. Yeah, if you've wanted that, that's fine by me. I, I tell you right now, though, like Mr. Lucky, I like. Mm. And Arsenic, well, Arsenic and Old Ace, I love that movie. <laughs> the Catch a Thief we have to talk about because you know what? I don't get that movie. Yeah, well, you know, I always loved it, and then I saw it again the other day, and I'm like, hmm, yeah. well, this doesn't work. Yeah. House by Northwest is very interesting. I, I'm very interested to talk about that. Mm-hmm. As well as Charade. Oh, Charade was decent. I'm proud of the passion. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. All right. Where'd that go? It's like you're talking like this. Really? Yeah. That's strange. Oh, you know, I, I, I turned it up midway through. Oh, maybe that's it. Because right now I'm not hearing it. It sounds much better. Listen on the playback, it's like you're sitting about six feet back and the room is uh, made out of metal or something. Well, I, I do have a fan <laughs> on because I don't want to sweat. No, don't sweat. Get out of here. You know, don't die for art. <laughs> like everybody else. Okay, let's... Uh, All right. So yesterday we left off with that. Hopefully you can stitch these two together. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've, I've had to do that before. Like yesterday when you hung up, it's the same idea. I was like... <laughs> I'm like dying here. I can't do anymore right now. Oh, no, no. Before that, there was like a spot where I accidentally hung up on this. Oh, It's not a big deal. So I think uh, yesterday we left off with that wonderful Penny Serenade. (laughs) So Suspicion? Yes, so Suspicion. 1941. That smoking hot and highly appealing sex bot, Joan Fontaine of Gunga Dan Rebecca and Hammers the Witches, heats up the screen as the prim, clinically neurotic, and utterly boring, hey, just like every other Joan Fontaine role, school marm type who gets picked up on a train by slick sharpster Cary Grant. Lovable Nigel Bruce, Holly from the original She and Watson in over a dozen Sherlock Holmes films, Hitchcock regular Leo G. Carroll of Bulldog Drummond's Secret Police, Charlie Chan in City of Darkness, Charlie Chan's Murder Cruise, Rebecca, Spellbound, The Paradigm Case, Strangers on the Train, and Tarantula. And the man uncle, TV show. That's true, too. Dame Mae Witty, the lovable Margaret Rutherford type and spy from The Lady Vanishes. And the annoying Heather Angel, the, quote, love interest of half a dozen Bulldog Drummond films, also of Cormac's Premature Burial, all appear. The plot is essentially Fontaine is an old spinster who falls for the first slick guy to pay any attention to her whatsoever, only to find he's a con man and gambler without any income, who may or may not be intending to kill her for the insurance money. Bruce is his typical blustery and highly enjoyable self, as Grant's dopey if good-natured pal, that's really all there is to it. Hitchcock wasn't only a master technician of cinema forefronting technique and utilizing every trick in the book to set mood, tension, and proto-argento use of heretofore rarely utilized, at least post-code in German expressionists, who he apprenticed under, actually, camera tricks, cinematographic angles, cutaways, or lack thereof, and even ridiculous long takes like rope where entire reels were filmed without cuts and roving camera just as an experiment. He was also a subversive who loved to fuck with audience expectations and accepted mores, and would regularly take actors and actresses with annoying established screen personae and flip them upside down. He fucked them, yeah. Yeah, showing a truer, more honestly flawed, if not downright dark side. 
folks that I cannot stand in any other film, like Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, Ingrid Bergman, and Grace Kelly, reveal themselves as multi-layered, neurotic, oversexed, cynical, or worse, leaving me praising and adoring screen icons for the exact opposite of what every uptight Midwestern family values type prude loves them for. He often pulled things from their real-world persona, like Grace Kelly's Nymphomania, for example, and in Grant's case, he took the handsome comedy star and leading man and left him sinister, a man of lies and secrets, and a perpetually befuddled, guilty-to-all-eyes victim of circumstance in four films that, suspicion aside, remain pretty much my favorite of all Hitchcock films, and in one case, one of the most sexy, double-entendulating films of its era, but this one is definitely the least of the four he did. But, you know, it's a step up from something like, I don't know if it's a step up from Rebecca, but, you know, that kind of thing. Like the other Fontaine films he did, this mm. is probably the best of the most down to Nigel Bruce and Cary Grant. So what's your take? I, I, I don't mind Joan Fontaine, especially back in the, the early days. I, I thought she was quite serviceable actress. Not fetching, because, you know, she, she they always... She's always so prim. <laughs> well, you, it seemed to me they had her play older than she was. Which, which which was a uh, a thing. Typically, back in these days, they they, they kind of had actresses play younger than they were, mm-hmm. or their age. But Joan Fontaine, who wasn't that old back then, was you know like there were a lot of films I've seen with her back from back then, where they had her play older than the age. So mm-hmm. surprisingly, when we saw her in the Hammer film, The Witches, in '66. By then, she was, like, in her 50s, and like, wow, really? She's still that young? Because, you know, relatively speaking, it was like we were so used to seeing her portraying older people. Yeah, I agree with you a lot on this film. It's it's not the best of the Hitchcock pictures, but it's interesting how <laughs> Hitchcock liked playing with – he was really good at casting. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like he would cast – the leads and kind of say, well, you know, you're, you're known for playing this kind of part. Yeah, this was the days of the studio system where people were deliberately built into, almost like they do with boy bands. We got a pre-existing role we want somebody to play, you'll fill that bill. And they would always portray them that way, even in like the, mm-hmm. not the scandal rags, but you know, the photo play and things like that. Like, oh, look, you know, debonair Cary Grant or, you know, whatever the hell it was, you know, yeah, hey, good old, you know, down home Jimmy Stewart. And, right. Right. and yeah. Hitchcock would fuck so- with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I agree with you on this one, yeah. So, uh, 1942, The Talk of the Town. Grant reunites with Gene Arthur for this stinker of a, quote, comedy from George Stevens, who, outside of Sarah Rogers' swing time, delivered a string of shit that we'll be covering tonight, like Penny Serenade, Gunga Din, and a Rock Hudson show's unwatchable giant. Rona Coleman, Raffles and Bulldog Drummond in a handful of films, is the real star of the smoking turd as a posh professor staying with the same lonely heart school marm and unusually prim Arthur, who falsely accused arsonist and murderer Grant hides out with, mostly because she's an ex who lives out in the woods. As the three become a sort of friendly love triangle, Coleman susses out the real culprit, said culprit manages to turn Grant into mob justice. Coleman rather unrealistically manages to calm the mob by talking logic, and there's a happy ending where Grant is both exonerated and hooks up with prim and prissy ex Arthur. Jeez, how to turn three thespians you walk in and have good feelings towards and make you pretty much hate them all, not to mention this dog shit movie. George Stevens should have been hanged for crimes against cinema. <laughs> What's your thing? Oh, I, I don't dislike George Stevens that much, but... Um, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, obviously. But, but no, you, you know, it, it, 
Yeah, this is not a great picture. Uh, it's of its time, but it's a, you're coming after the Hitchcock movie. It's another movie where Cary Grant is not the usual, uh, you know, bon vivant, you know, mm-hmm. jokester kind of thing. And uh, But picture talking back like a crowd of MAGA or something with logic. <laughs> like, really, that's going to yeah. work? Sure. Sure. <laughs> But yeah, it's a really not a great film by any means. Anything else you want to say about it? No, no. So 1943, Destination Tokyo. Oh, did you skip Mr. Lucky? Oh, I didn't see it. Yes, so go ahead, Mr. Lucky. Oh, I love this one. Yeah, it wasn't one of the sets, so I didn't get to see it. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. You know I'm I know right. that, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mr. Lucky, um, 1943... Directed by H. Period C. Period Potter H. C. Potter, yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> well, anyway, he plays a gambler, a grifter, and yeah, you know, he was in the war. He receives draft notices, but he's like, I'm not going to go through the war. That, you know, he was 4F. Okay. So he becomes a criminal. <laughs> nice. And and so. It's kind of a dark movie. I, you know, Cary Grant is then, you know, I don't know, maybe it was this ex- exposure to Hitchcock or whatever, or maybe his people said, hey, keep doing these kind of movies. You know, he plays Joe Adams, a.k.a. Joe Boscopoulos. Yeah, go for that one. That's a great name <laughs> for ever I heard one. Oh, my God. I really like this one because I always remember when I first saw Mr. Lucky, and I saw Mr. Lucky again from the show, I was like, Wow, he's amazing in this. It's a dark film. You know, he's a down-on-out guy trying to make it in the world. And World War II is happening. And, like, it's like, what does he do? You know, so he gets a mistaken letter addressed to, he's Joe Adams. He plays Joe Adams. To a guy who's in occupied Greece. The letter was from this guy's mom to him. And he reads this letter, and, and, you know, he's like a thug kind of guy, you know, on the low, low, dirty grime scale. Mm-hmm. And it, he rethinks his life. And then suddenly, as he rethinks his life, he says, you know what? I'm going to get all the bad people I know. We're going to steal a lot of money and give it to good people. Hmm. But you end up with a lot of problems with that. <laughs> and and uh, he's shot. I always thought he was mortally wounded, and I wonder if it was studio engineering Yeah. at the end, because I was like... We can't kill Cary Grant. <laughs> well, no, I thought he was mortally wounded. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that's what I'm saying. That's some studio exec all that. And it's like struggling. The guy's bleeding. But there he is standing at the dock where, where he's reunited with this woman who really loves him, Lorraine Day. Is that a lot of familiar faces in this movie? But I really liked it. It was very smoky, very noirish. If anybody hadn't seen Mr. Lucky, like me, um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know you couldn't. But it's not your fault. It's, I, I really liked this one. Yeah, I've actually been watching uh, Peter Gunn lately. I'm surprised because you know, I had like, memories of like, yeah, whatever, some detective show. But it's like it's okay. Yes, I would admit the scripts are not as good as something like the Darren McGavin, Mike Hammers from back then. But, okay, the music is, like, you know, typical smoky jazz, you know, Terry Mancini, all that stuff. Uh, Mancini. Yes. Mancini. But, well, it's decent. You know, some of it's bad, some of it's good, but, you know, it's it fits the stuff. 
but I tell you, it's such a noir-esque atmosphere. Everything's set at night, rain-swept streets. They're always kind of holed up in the same crappy bar. And it's like, you know, I really like the atmosphere in this damn show. So, yeah, if that, when you talk about noir stuff, I'm like, hmm, that, that sounds interesting to me. I do love that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, no, it's really good. Yeah, you should try and track it down, even post-show. Yeah. I, I really like this, and it always, close to me, was one of the best things I've ever seen him do. Unfortunately, I, it, it doesn't matter whether it did anything for Cary Grant moving forward. Then two years later, he did one of his best pictures. Yeah. So 1943 does Destination Tokyo. Boy, another pairing of the skipper's father, Alan Hill Sr., with Grant in a boring war film where Grant is a submarine captain used in a propaganda effort to get American boys to join the Navy. This staker is directed by Delmer Davies, who gave us our Humphrey Bogart show's Dark Passage and uh, Precious Little Else. Unlike our Rock Hudson Zero's Ice Station Zebra or even Japan's Atragon, this may be the most dull and turgid submarine film ever lensed. The submarine's on a mission to Tokyo, something ridiculous to do with weather satellite intelligence before there were satellites, who the hell knows. Of course, they get in scuffles with Japanese Zeros and so forth, but yeah, for a war film, and I've been watching a lot of war films with these last several shows, and even on my own outside that, this yes. is incredibly dull. There's precious little action. The drama... Oh, we, should do, we should do war films be like... You mentioned that, yeah, because there, there are quite a few we'd already covered as well. I know that Bitter Victory was a really good one from the Burton show. And I mentioned, what was that one I saw recently? Castle Keep? Uh, yeah, we oh, got Castle Locked. Keep, we're yep. there, which we already mentioned. Oh, yeah, right. there. we did a couple shows, I think. Burton and Clint Eastwood, for sure. But anyway, in this one, there's precious little action. The drama is far from engaging. It's an all-mill cast. It's just kind of hard to sit through. Perhaps this might work better because of that for a male-only market. But even then, there's not really enough cheesecake or camp to appreciate. It's another must-avoid, and I said at the time, because this was a little earlier when I was writing this, did Grant do any good films? <laughs> Obviously he did, but you know, no, it was did, a pretty bad did. one. Um, yeah. Well, John Garfield was a big thing at this time, briefly. John Garfield was a big thing. So the combination of Garfield and uh, Cary Grant, they're thinking box office. And yeah, interesting, so Cary Grant is given a, a mature role as a captain. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's an issue. You know, submarine films are very, very difficult to do. Yes. To pull off. I was actually surprised Ice Station Zebra was so good. Because I'm like, it's just basically half, the first half of the film easily is set on a submarine. And when they get out of it and wind up in like a sort of like the thing territory in Antarctica, it actually went downhill. So yeah. that was, that's a really good submarine film if you want to sit through one. Well, you know, one I saw recently was uh, with, maybe one day we do him, Gerard Butler. A thing called Hunter Killer where he plays a, uh, a commander that was something happened on his last mission. He's given control over this new sub, and then suddenly they're like, you have to go to Russia, Russian waters. And he's like, why? Don't ask questions. And, like, he's the new guy, and he, you know, the guys on the sub heard just issues with him. Mm-hmm. And as they get closer, there's a coup in Russia. Mm-hmm. And they take the, I know, they take the, Russian president captive, but the guys who do the coup are like fucking nuts. So yeah, they're looking to like just destroy everything. So he gets a he gets a command. <laughs> you got to get there, rescue the Russian president, <laughs> which is like who wants to do that? But if you don't, yo, it's the end of the world. And they have to go through this uh, what do you call it? 
these mines, undersea mines. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good for, for it's like one of the best undersea sub movies I saw in a while. It's funny when you said Gerard Butler, I had to look it up because I'm like, do you mean the guy who did Adam Adamant? But that was Gerard Harper. <laughs> no, no, Gerard Butler, the guy who did like Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, the whole fucking world has fallen. Okay. Which, 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 you know, he's done some really good pictures, though. Yeah, because I knew you hated Adam Adamant. I'm like, what are you going to do with Gerard Harper? I was like, I, <laughs> I love that show, but anyway. But, but <laughs> back to Destination Tokyo, it's not that great. Yeah, so 1944, and here we're going to diverge for sure. Arsenic and Old Lace. I love this movie. You don't like this movie? <laughs> oh, my God, I hate it. Uh, <laughs> I had sex during this movie. Wouldn't it be crazy? <laughs> what did <you> say? <laughs> uh, so anyway, fellow paisan Francesco Rosario Capra, better known as Frank Capra, and best known for his Why We Fight propaganda series in the 40s, as well as the only Oscar winner worth actually watching. It happened one night with Clark Gable and Claude Colbert. Oh, and also the Gene Harlow Platinum Blonde makes his first major misstep with this Grant-starring stinker revolving around two old biddies. Raymond Massey of the Sherlock Holmes Speckled Man. Go ahead, keep going. Remember Massey of the Sherlock Holmes Speckled Band from 1932? Edward Everett Horton, professor flustered sidekick to Fred Astaire? Peter Laurie of M and several Corman Poe adaptations? And a Priscilla Lane who co-starred with Bob Cummings and Hitchcock's Saboteur are the cast. The entire film revolves around Grant, a confirmed bachelor who perhaps reluctantly married the surprisingly fetching Lane, attempting to cover up for his insane family, which consists of Massey as a crazy old man who keeps fantasizing yeah. against Teddy Roosevelt, and two horrible old bags who are actually serial killers who invite lonely men to rent the room and then murder them to put them out of their misery. Grant becomes increasingly strange and suspicious. Lane becomes increasingly perturbed by his behavior, and eventually all is well when Grant learns that he was actually adopted or the servant's daughter or some shit. This frees him up to get with his wife finally. Seriously? In the hands of a more sophisticated pre-code director or a 70s tourist, they could have been a dark tour de force in the vein of, say, you know, the Adams Family movies at the very least. But here, it's safe Midwestern cheese centering on these horrible old women and precious little actual humor. It's supposed to be funny, mind. I never liked this one. I never understood why others do. And in that respect, it's much like Capra's much-faded and nearly unwatchable later work like It's a Wonderful Life, a maudlin hunk of holiday shit which everyone I know seems to jerk off to. 28 minutes in felt like an hour and a half. It's that bad. It's that wait, bad. Wait, wait, wait. Who would jerk off to It's a Wonderful Life? Everybody I know thinks it's like such a great film. I can't fucking watch it. Every time an angel gets his like, fuck you. Yeah, but you wouldn't jerk off to that. <laughs> they might as well. Everybody's so like, oh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, my favorite Christmas film. Oh, my God. You're a sick man. <laughs> All right. Let me know when you're done. Mm-hmm. You're done? As soon as Clarence stops calling. Clarence! <laughs> All yours. I love this movie. You're fucking crazy. <laughs> this is one of the funniest movies I ever saw in my life. Are you serious? I almost spit my shit out. <laughs> no, no. Really, really. It's one of the funniest movies I ever saw in my life. That noise was actually me like holding back so I didn't spit out the floor. <laughs> what, what are you drinking there? Uh, at the moment, it's just, uh, it, it's not it's not wine at the moment, no. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it's like an enhancer's in the water. Oh, water enhancer. Yeah. It's water. That's it. Our, our co-host is drinking enhanced water. 
<laughs> All right. So anyway, it's just because I hate water. Funniest comedies. <laughs> I don't like comedies too much. Everybody knows me. If you know me, mm-hmm. if you know me on Facebook, I'm very particular about what makes me. I don't even know what makes me laugh. I love Monty Python. Not everything. I like Pink Panther up to Pink Panther Strikes Again. Mm-hmm. I'm very particular about what makes me laugh, mm-hmm. probably because life is so fucking sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm being serious. I love comedy, oh, but I have a strange sense of humor as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we both have strange sense of humor. I mean, there's other things, too. Cheech and Chong makes me spit my teeth out. Parkies, parkies. <laughs> yeah. Hello? Is my cunt here? <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's stupid, but it's like, this shit is funny. So, back to this. So this was a Broadway stage play, often with Boris, yes, Boris Karloff doing the role uh, of Jonathan Brewster, the brother. Mm-hmm. That Raymond Massey played here. Yes. For some reason, God knows whatever it was, Karloff didn't do the movie. I understand that they tried to get him to do the movie because they yes. really tried. It would have been really interesting. So... And it was before he went up in the wheelchair. It wasn't like when he was doing the Mexican film, so no, that's no. not the reason. No, no, this is like 1940-something. So. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's not the reason at all. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was money? So that explains why Raymond Massey is made up to look like Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. That's true. Um, but I like this movie because I think Cary Grant is so fucking funny and manic. How did they get a manic? Did they get? Did they feed this guy acid? We're going to that later. Um, yes. <laughs> he's so he's manic from the fucking get go. Like he, you know, he, he <laughs> he's he's engaged to her. He's not married to her yet, I believe, right? So he engaged to this woman, and yeah. like, and you know, his his older sister is like, yeah, like I said, they're serial killers. They're old lady serial killers. And Peter Lorre's pure goldenness, you know, he's like, yum, yum, doing the Peter Lorre shtick. And I love how Grant just gets more and more and more and more fucking manic as this movie. It's almost two hours, which is kind of long for the day, 44. Mm-hmm. More and more manic as it progresses. And I'm like, holy shit. And I remember, I remember, um, uh, Happened a couple times in my life. I said, I had my ex-wife once. Mm-hmm. And I said, you want to see something different? Oh, it's black and white. I said, no, no, watch it. She liked it. And we went out to Northern California and uh, met her ambisexual uh, drama teacher mm-hmm. who swam naked in her sauna hot tub. <clears throat> yeah, I was like, why, why is our house naked? <laughs> Northern California. I'm like, okay. And I saw she had this on her shelf. I said, hey, I'd like to see that again. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, everybody loved it. You know, it's like, it's not for everybody. Some people just don't like comedy, but it's, it's an unusual comedy. It's it's manic. It's like, it's almost like Howard Hawks. You can see how much I like this movie, right? It's, to me, it's almost like Howard Hawks. It's like bang, 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 bang. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. And oddly enough, it's something they don't resurrect on stage. Probably because you can't find actors that would, like, fucking do this justice. You know, nowadays. 
But uh, I liked the hell out of this movie. I did see something a couple of years back. I think it was during COVID. And when they were showing all this, you know, PBS type stuff off of stages where, because, you know, nobody could go. And I am positive they did Arsenic and All Lazy. And it may have been an all black cast. I'm not positive because I know we saw a couple well, of things that were like it might, that. It might have been fun. I'll have to check it out because, you know, black, Indian, fucking Swedish. I don't know if it works. It works. You know? <laughs> but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Anyway, so 1946, uh, Night and Day. <sighs> Michael Curtiz has given us much better work in films like The Count Murder Case. Probably my favorite all-time old horror film, Dr. X, Casablanca from our Humphrey Bogart show, and King Creole from our Elvis show. Gives us a strangely bolderized take on sophisticated and witty swing-era songwriter Cole Porter, where he's portrayed as an entirely straight man, and it's just a whole lot of whitewashed ass-kissing. Now, I like Cole Porter songs, which, much like the works of Noel Coward or Oscar Wilde before him, are filled with witty asides, double entendre, and sophisticated innuendo. So to have this cleaned-up, Midwestern-friendly nonsense ostensibly representing his life story is particularly egregious. Stacked with a weird cast of actors and actresses like Jane Wyman of our rock cousin shows All That Heaven Allows and the original Nancy Reagan, Eve Arden, Mary Martin, most famously Peter Pan on Broadway for many years, and the skipper's father, Alan Harris Sr. Say what? Hmm. Wrong-headed to say the least. That's all I'm going to say. How about you? <laughs> oh, it's interesting. I wouldn't say it's terrible. It's, you know, biopics. They often whitewash things, yeah. Of this day. Uh, I saw you skip None But the Lonely Heart. Yeah, I did not see that one. Yeah, I did watch this. It was directed by, written by Clifford Odets, a famous playwright. Cary Grant actually was nominated or even won a fucking Academy Award for this thing, where he actually goes back to his Cockney pitch, which is interesting. Hmm. Yeah, his Cockney accent. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like... I didn't like this movie. I, I'm sorry, but he comes back from the war and, you know, his family needs him, but he's like ambivalent. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, he has these things he saw in the war and he goes out drinking and he's a drunk. And he prefers the company of loose women, let's say. <laughs> but his wife is pregnant. And so, yo, it's 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 a very strange movie, casted with heavyweights, so like Ethel Barrymore, mm-hmm. Barry Fitzgerald, Jay Wyatt, George Clerus, Dan Fury, and it did get Grant a lot of film award notice. Yeah, Academy Award. Oh, nominated Academy Award for Best Actor. But personally, I found it was like, yeah, it's okay. That's the problem. Like the Oscars, that's why I always say there's really not many good Oscar films that I even want to watch because they love these kind of depressing, hard scrabbles. Somebody's got a rotten life dramas, and it's just like, really? Who the fuck wants to watch this shit? Life's tough enough. <laughs> so now we're back to Hitchcock. Territory. Yes. Oh, and we get so much better. Oh god, this is actually one of my favorite Hitchcock films. Here's Notorious, 1946. Take it easy, there. You need a shower. <laughs> it, it always has been since I was a teenager. 
Bergman had a reputation as a notorious homewrecker in real life, so Hitchcock broke with her usual sainted screen persona to cast her as a compromised tart and double agent Matahari in what is on the surface a wartime spy story, mm. but is really more about a screwed up relationship and acceptance of actual flawed human beings as a partner. Once a tramp, always a tramp. Bergman, in her only likable role, really, is believably realistic as the scandal-ridden debutante daughter of a fifth columnist. She's a drunken party girl with a string of casual affairs under her belt, who falls for no-nonsense G-Man Grant, but he's really only interested in her for transactional purposes. I'm only fishing for a little bird call from a dream man. He's a manipulator who, despite some mildly conflicting feelings, winds up pimping her out, as a Matahari to sleep with the former flame, the invisible man's sleazy Claude Rains, who's also a Nazi traitor, this time down in Rio. Rains, a closeted homosexual who's under the thumb of his domineering mother, is highly suspicious. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Watch the film. Is highly suspicious of her and her not so clandestine meetings with Grant, which puts her in extreme danger and her already troubled relationship with him in even worse jeopardy. You almost have me believing in this little miracle of yours that a woman like you could ever change her spots. What makes this film really live is how the further he pushes her into the arms of Reigns, the more bitter and nasty Grant becomes towards her. Mm. From chilly and seemingly unaffected by her obvious passion for him at the start, he finds himself in far more reciprocal emotional ties the deeper she gets into her whoring for hire scenario. I couldn't bear seeing you and him together. He loved me. Why didn't you tell me before? I couldn't see straight or think straight. I was a fat-headed guy full of pain. It tore me up not having you. This is a dysfunctional relationship non-parallel, a prime example of the Madonna horror complex in action, where it takes an open marriage, quote-unquote, thruple situation, where he pushes her into his own cuckolding to inflame his passion for her. In a way, it's extremely kinky if doomed from the start pairing, and for the mid-40s, it really skirts the whole Hays Code faux morality that ruined nearly three decades of cinema, and that's the reason I love Hitchcock so much. This film is fucking amazing. If you don't read it as this is surface spy, you know, whatever the hell, and you really look what's going on here, whoa! It is. It should have been a pre-code film, and for something that was made in the middle of the, the code, the high day of it, amazing shit. It's a good film. So, what's your take? Oh, it's a good film. Uh, it's it's Claude Rains is on on his fucking uh, he's 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 on the mark here. You know, he's like he's he's hungry and ready to chew screen time with Cary Grant because uh, he's he, Claude Rains was always a very good actor and and so you know Hitchcock decides I'm gonna fuck with your persona even more, Cary, <laughs> and so. Yeah, he makes this whole thing with the, this guy kind of lets his girlfriend sort of be cuckolded by a guy who's like gay. Yeah. It, it's so weird. It's so strange. And don't forget, I mean, I didn't touch on this, but there's another subtext here, it's psychologically, where in effect, Grant is fucking reigns through her. Yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're sharing her, and that's like, oh, wait, she's the in-between. You know what I mean? She's like the sandwich, the meat in the sandwich. Like, holy shit, this was made in 1946? So, yeah, it's it's something else. I love this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, she's the in-between, but at the same time, he's bisexual, at the least. At the least, yeah. Yeah, so, a very interesting movie. And it's a very sexy film, too. I mean, oh, even yeah. if you just take it on the level of the relationship between Bergman and Grant, it's like, 
Ooh, wow, she's pretty hot. And he's like, once he finally wakes up, I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> but not like she so. was asleep, but you know, still. Yeah. So. 1947, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. <laughs> now, there's a guy who never goes out of a girl's mind. He just kind of lays there like a heavy meal. Directed by an Irving Rice of the first three George Sanders Falcon films, this one features a, a visibly aging Myrna Loy in a hideous haircut as the much older sister. As in, hi, I'm 16. Here's my 47-year-old sister of a surprisingly cute... <laughs> Of a surprisingly cute Shirley Temple, as the teenage lead speaking nonsense jive talk no one of any age has ever heard before. Loy is also a judge who sees a case involving Cary Grant, the sort of, quote, artist who frequents sleazy nightclubs, reads CD 60s photographer, and bangs all the, quote, talent who was involved in a large public scuffle. He then lectures at Temple School, where all the ladies wolf whistle and stand up and cheer just because, you know, it's Cary Grant. And, of course, the precocious and rather horny teenager instantly falls for him. Do you know him? No, him. We have a courtroom permanently set aside for him. She decides to dress up like an old lady and go up to, quote, model at his apartment. But he's not there, so she passes out. He comes home later and only to find her there just as the family comes knocking on the door. So, of course, he winds up in jail for statutory rape. Temple comes to visit him in jail with a file and a cake. And the rest of the movie is Lawyer and her father, 20s crooner Rudy Valley, trying to protect Temple from her own teenage emo tendencies by, get this, having Grant be her boyfriend until she gets over him. I'm serious, that is the plot. She takes him to a school basketball game. They go to a soda shop in a sack race. Her old boyfriend's acting like a rival. It's all very silly and actually rather amusing, even when Loy winds up falling for the guy herself. And really, is it any surprise that both the frumpy Loy and the likable but decidedly juvenile Temple want to get into Cary Grant's pants? So, there you go. It's not a great film, but it's fun. It's, it's fun. It's, it's interesting how maybe because of his uh, more recent movies made around this time period, like the Hitchcock films, mm. that they decide to cast Cary maybe older than he is because he comes across that way. So it's weird. Like, you know, you know, Shirley Temple's not a kid anymore, obviously. No. And Myrna Loy, you know, Myrna, you know, come and go. I loved Myrna in the 30s when she was playing all those exotics, like in those Fumanchu films and such. Mm -hmm. I loved her, again, in the 30s, not even quite into the 40s, but, you know, if in the 30s doing all those Thin Man films and things like that. And the things she did with Clark Gable and, you know, even we mentioned one before, which she did with Cary Grant. I think it was uh, the one where he's supposed to be blind or whatever. Yes. She was great. I love Myrna Loy. By this point, I'm like, oh, my God, she really, you know, she's hitting middle age and she's wearing this awful haircut. And somehow, instead of saying, okay, this is my mother, this is my stepmother, this is whatever, my aunt. Oh, no, this is her sister, Shirley Temple. She looks 40 years older than Shirley Temple. It's like awful. Yeah, so, well. yeah. It's hard to comment and stuff like that, but <laughs> yeah, it's not a great Cary Grant movie. I'll leave it at that. Mm. So, 1948, Mr. Blandings builds his dream house. Anybody who builds a house today, it's crazy. The minute you start, they put you on the all-American sucker list. You start out to build a house and wind up in the poorhouse. And if it can happen to me, what about those who weren't making this kind of money? Directed by Harry Potter, I shit you not, that's the guy's name, of no notable credit, outside of a score at Quidditch anyway. This one features Myrna Loy, Melvin Douglas, Reginald Denny, Louise Beavers, Jason Robarts Sr., and Lex Barker. Yes, Louise Beavers, you know her. And Lex Barker, of all people. 
Maybe I'm thinking I was once a happy man. I didn't have a closet, three bedrooms, and three bathrooms, but I did have my sanity, a few dollars, and a wife I could trust. Oh, boy. If you ever had to move into a new house and fix it to your own preferences, or if you've ever, like myself and my father did, taken a small house and rebuilt it to something much larger and more aesthetic, you will be horrified by this film. You won't be laughing. Ostensibly a comedy, this one reunites Bachelor and the Bobby Sox as Myrna Loy with Grant. As a pair of Manhattanites who, due to their apartment being cramped and his wife's fetish for improvement, find themselves in a situation where they either invest a ridiculous amount of money into expanding the place, or move out into a rural area of Connecticut where the delusions of building a palatial estate are stymied by the realities of the real estate market and all the hangers-on relating to scammy sellers, sleazy agents, and home improvement parasites. They find a rundown shack and think it has potential. Their lawyer advises against it, particularly as the owner is wish pricing. But desperate to follow their dreams, they decide to invest in this money pit. You can imagine what happens over the next hour or so of running time. Anything and everything possible goes wrong. If you ever sat through the awful Tom Hanks film, The Money Pit, which we covered on our Richard Benjamin show, you sort of... Which is like a, a remake of It is, stuff. yeah, so you know what to expect here. Yes, Grant and Lawyer are a hell of a lot more likable than the neurotic Shelley Long and the brillo-headed and annoying Tom Hanks, but the only people laughing at this are those who have never had to deal with the situation. I, it's just, it's supposed to be funny, it's painful. <laughs> so, what's your take? Well, yo, 1948 film, yeah, ret- retrospect. More true now than it was then. <laughs> Yeah, more true now than it was then, but, you know, if you're watching it at the time it was made, I don't know, maybe people were more into the comedic aspects of such a thing. I watched it, I was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) So, 1949, I was a male war bride. You know what you made them think? Well, I'd be delighted to explain to them the very idea of our connection is revolting. I think you're repulsive. And so Grant speaks for us all as he's paired up with old Butch Ann Sheridan, whose best work was as a young extra in pre-code films like Search for Beauty, Murder at the Vanities, and Kiss and Makeup, though she appeared in the much later They Drive by Night from our Humphrey Bogart show as well. Whatever you think of her as a youthful ingenue, by 1949 she was pretty old and hard-bitten, making her casting in an ostensible wartime, quote, romantic comedy a real jaw-dropper. And I may as well warn you, I'm going to carry a revolver and a trench knife. And if you so much as lay a finger on me in this trip, you're going back to France minus a lot of parts you probably value. Unless you think it's hilarious to see Grant put in all sorts of ostensibly compromising situations, including a stint and drag, attached to military and legal ways to this frightening, manly harridan, this one's an easy pass. It's not funny, there's zero chemistry, and it's like an episode of Andy Cap, except you'd be swapping Johnny Weissmuller for the Kangol Sporting Barfly. I was really surprised they never showed Sheridan in a bush can apron, sleeves rolled up, wielding a rolling pin. <laughs> what was your take on this one? Well, it's it's uh, really popular with the uh, it's really popular with the Cary uh, Grant crowd. Really? Oh yeah, Cary <sighs> Grant fans worldwide really like this movie. You know, Howard Hawks, we we discussed him before yeah. and uh, earlier, and uh, you know he was very unique where he would, I would love to have been around that time, you know, working with him, how he, you know, he, he would, like, set up these these takes, you know, like, the, you know, the speaking over one another, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very unique for that. I don't mind Ann Sheridan, but a lot of, a lot, so getting back, a lot of Cary Grant fans really liked this movie, 
I'm a Cary Grant fan, and I don't like this movie. <laughs> it's so... I, I, I just... Yeah, it's so, like, yeesh. Yeah, you know, it's, and it's implausible, because... All right, if he's going to go through all this crap, at least... All right, even if it's... Okay, she's in the military. We get that. She's a whack. But... You know, make her somebody like I don't know, a Betty Grable or somebody that like you could root for. This woman is butch. She's mean. She's very manly looking with her haircut and this kind of thick build. She's got. She looks like she could take you out. I'm like, you know, it's, it's like casting Shayna Baszler. Those of you who are wrestling fans, it's like the the romantic comedy lead. I'm like, no, it doesn't work. I'm sorry. There are roles you could put her in, not this. So yeah. Anyway. Well. Yeah, it's a thing if you got a thing for big, thick girls. So, <laughs> big, I mean, thick, mean girls, but yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> where are we going? And not very feminine ones. Uh, 1951, People Will Talk. Batman's Clock King, Walter Slezak, also of our Rock Cousin shows Come September in a very special favor. Hatchet Face, Wicked Witch of the West, Margaret Hamilton of William Castle's 13 Ghosts. And Low Rent 40s Glamour Girl, Jean Crane, starring a cinematic atrocity from Joseph Mankiewicz of our Richard Burton shows Cleopatra and our Michael Caine shows Sleuth. It's yet another 50s film about gossipy assholes and small-town, quote-unquote, family values, and the cost on anyone who deviates from the norm. It's not even worth getting into this soapy melodrama, which folks misleadingly refer to as a, quote, comedy drama, save to say that there's another single mother situation, Grant's a warm-hearted doctor, Slezak's his good buddy, and there's a bunch of shitheads who hate them both slandering them and making everyone's life difficult. They even go after Grant's medical license. Go family values! Gotta love those flag-waving Republican types. <sighs> As you can probably tell, we're hitting a very bad run of films in Grant's career, and an even worse time in sociocultural history. Forget about cinema for the next decade and a half. Thank God for the subversive Brit Alfred Hitchcock, is all I can say. And I'll bet Grant said the same. So what's your take on this one? Yeah, it's not a... 1951, it's not a great Grant film. And, you know, Joseph L. or or whatever the hell his name is spelled. <laughs> Sorry, folks. You know, you, 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 can, you can comment later for murdering names. <laughs> I, I do it sometimes when I'm talking about prod stuff on my other page, and it's Italian, French, or German, because... All I'm going by is what I'm reading. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, yeah, this is not a great movie, though. It's, it's. I don't mind, you know, as I said before, I don't mind Gene Grain. In a way, though, it's a step back for Cary Grant. It's the kind of thing he used to do. Yes. And, yeah, actually, I was thinking of that one film he did, oh, God, way back, where the girl was, like, slandered everywhere because her mm. scummy boyfriend decided, like, oh, yeah, she was sleeping with him, even though she wasn't. And then uh, right. ruined their relationship with uh, Reynolds Scott. I forget what the hell that thing was. I'm actually looking back in the stuff to see where it was. Yeah, it's a similar film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, he, like you said, it is a... Oh, Hot Saturday, that was it. Hot Saturday, yep. yeah. So, anyway. 1952, Monkey Business. Proof positive that the sophisticated screwball comedy was long dead in a decade of doofiness and conservatism, this smoking, sloppy turd in the middle of the room wastes the talents of Howard Hawks, Grant and an unrecognizably aged Ginger Rogers who went from horror flicks at the 13th guest in A Streak in the Night to a string of fun films with Fred Astaire with America's schizophrenic icon of plasticity and fakeness Marilyn Monroe <laughs> taking the quote other woman role that used to be filled by sexy sophisticates like a Gail Patrick a Lynn Barry or such like 
The comedy is beyond broad, complete with a doofy sub-teenage audience baiting Spike Jones meets Jackie Gleason-ass soundtrack and a fucking monkey dressed up and causing, quote, antics. Grant is ill-cast as a dotty scientist who accidentally stumbles across a youth-reviving drug that starts everyone in the cast acting like they're in their teens again. Ho, ho. Watching a half an hour of this felt like watching three full-length Sergio Leone pictures without a smidgen of the entertainment value. Outside of rock and roll, the 1950s really sucked. What's your take? <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one because uh, you got a great director. You have a very interesting cast. Yeah, even Robert Cornthwaite, who was in The Thing, the Hawks version, was in this. But why is this so, like, eh? There are a lot of people like Monkey Business, and that's fine. You like the movie, that's fine. They're probably all Monroe I mean, fans, because I can't see why else anybody want to watch this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, I'm just not knocking them. It, it, it falls under genre of screwball comedy. Sort of. But Grant is getting older. And Ginger Rogers, who's been around for a long time, mostly on Fred Astaire films, or films with Fred Astaire, and Marilyn Monroe was ingenue at this point, still ingenue, mm-hmm. so she's starting out. This could have been better. A lot better. <laughs> a lot better, yeah. It's just like, yeah, I'm not sure what they were going for with this. And, you know, 1952... So it's it's sort of like the thing revisiting our Rock Hudson show when they were trying to do stuff at Rock to appeal to everybody and, and just do these ridiculous screwball comedies so anybody that was popular into the mix. You know, if it was a Rock Hudson, it would be Rock Hudson, Ginger Rogers, Doris Day. <laughs> <laughs> You know what this reminded me of? It's like they were trying to go back at least 10 years and do something yeah. like, let's just say, because that's a fun screwball one, that's Carefree, you know, the, the Sarah Rogers yeah. movie, okay. with touches of Cary Grant and bringing up Baby, because, you know, he's got the respectful yeah. nerd kind of thing, and then yeah. making it for, like, a dumb teenage audience with, like, the monkey and the goofy soundtrack, and then trying to make it, quote-unquote, modern by bringing in, ooh, look, Marilyn Monroe is hot now, and oh, it's just, it doesn't work and people are too old to be in these roles and it's just okay well they're going back to the fountain of youth but yeah well, it that, doesn't work I, I, let me correct myself maybe I didn't mean too old to be in the role but you know like they're, they're definitely you know, we've been covering Carrie for the last 10-15 uh, years early of his career and you know so he wasn't a kid but he started out hey what are you eating man yeah I've heard that <laughs> It's, it's like I was saying before about Myrna Lloyd, but much worse. Because, you know, in Mr. Blanding's, you didn't really notice. You did notice that she was, like, way too old to be the, quote, sister like compared to Shirley, Shirley Temple. But Ginger Rogers, I didn't recognize her. I had no idea that was Ginger Rogers until I look at the cast list. I'm like, what? Really? No. And just, you know, ten years before, she was an ingenue. Yeah. Do you know Ginger Rogers in 1952? Well, no, she was scary there. <laughs> See? See? She was scary at this point. It's you don't recognize her if you aren't expecting her. And then, then there, there was like a hello, hi, I'm Ginger Rogers. Okay. <laughs> well, if it was 1940, yeah, sure, she was pretty hot back then. But yeah, I mean, it's just you don't recognize her. Is the point? It's like. What the hell? Okay. And then she's supposed to be having this rejuvenating drug, so she's acting like a teenager, but it doesn't work because it's like, 
I don't know, your mom at, like, you know, the HBR now running around, like, you know, acting like she's going to go to a sock hop. I'm like, that's just, I don't know, something's just wrong here. And it's not funny. It's supposed to be funny, but it's like... Well, no, that's a guilt thing. (laughs) Anyway. Is there anything else you want to say on that one, or just move on? To Catch a Thief? Yes. 1955, To Catch a Thief. Grace Kelly, whose entire career revolves around a trio of films for Hitchcock, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and this one, playing eye candy in a goofy western High Noon, late career Gable, Ava Gardner, Jungle Adventure, Mogambo, and our Frank Sinatra show's failed Philadelphia story remake, High Society, before becoming a literal princess of a postage stamp nation, bloated drunk, and driving her car off a cliff, is in her glory here, and by far her sexiest role and my favorite of her films. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. This is where I wrote beforehand. An incredibly slow start and laid-back pace, though, Marwood eventually turns into a fun sexual innuendo-laden heist film romance in the latter half, where Notorious keeps the viewer engaged from the first meeting of our leads, and North by Northwest keeps audiences off kilter and on the edge of their seat from the first few minutes, this one doesn't kick into gear until at least 35-45 minutes of snooze-worthy gab and precious little else has passed. An overly tanned Grant, who looks so dark he's practically charbroiled, or as a pal once said of a tanning parlor obsessive Italian bimbo we once worked with, she could pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a former French resistance man, despite never even attempting a French accent, and cat burglar pardoned and presumed gone straight. So, of course, the second any burglars take place in the Riviera, their Rupert Murdoch-style news rags instantly blame it on poor Grant, who's forced to hide out with the help of a plain-Jane French girl with the hots for him, and track down the real thief to clear his name. So how come you haven't made a pass at my daughter? Grant, who lived with Randolph Scott for 12 years as a pair of, quote, most eligible bachelors, according to gossip rags of the era, seems to take his sweet old time coming on to noted real-world nymphomaniac Kelly. But when they finally do, and despite an obvious pronounced age difference between the two, sparks fly, and the two girls get catty over him, which marks the exact point that the film finally shows signs of life. As a Hitchcock film, it falls surprisingly flat, at least for an inordinately long setup that should have been condensed into less than a third of that time. But as a fun, witty, and suggestive dialogue-laden affair, it has few parallels, both of which also star Grant in the Hitchcock canon, much less peers in its era. The first half is hard to sit through. It really was like, geez, do I remember this film right? But then when it finally picks up, yeah, it works. But it works only on that level as this really innuendo-laden romance between the two of them and some nice cattiness between Kelly and this French girl. So, what's your take? I don't like this movie. Yeah, a lot of people don't. And probably because of that first half. <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I like this sort of movie. And, you know, we had a whole show on French... French crime films, crime yes. Crime films. Oh, it doesn't work as a crime film. No, no way. No, which, which uh, I'm trying to formulate uh, my thoughts here, which uh, some of them imbue the uh, the essence of this film uh, in a way. And, and I've never, you know, a lot of people like this movie. You like this movie. I've never warmed to this film because I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You know, it's, you know what? There's a remake called Entrapment with Sean Connery. And Catherine Sager-Jones, which is better than this. Yeah, see, when I was younger, I really liked it because I liked the whole yeah. Grant-Kelly thing. I loved all the sexual innuendo, that whole scene with the picnic I basket. I the sexual innuendo, you know me. I love, love the sexual. cattiness between the two women, 
all that kind of stuff really worked. And to extent, it still does work. Not as well as it did then. But that first half is so bad. And there's so much of a quiet pace. Like the whole scene where he's doing the cat burglary business uh, to try to clear his name. And they have that fr- that ball. And I think it's the father has the, the mask on him dancing with Kelly the whole night. Or the cops are watching. It's just like, oh my God, this is so slow. I remember this one being a lot better than it is. The parts that work really work. But... It's like, you know, so let's say it's an hour and a half movie. I don't remember the exact time. You could have condensed this down to 40 minutes, and it would have been a fantastic picture. <laughs> As it is, eh. Well, no, I mean, I, I respect that it's a well-liked film. It's just never a movie that, that Bradley. Yeah, it's too... I always tried to, re- which I did, I always rewatched this. To like, oh, let me take another look at this. You know, whether it was on Turner Classic Movies or whether it was for the show. I said, well, yeah, maybe I missed something. You know, he looks great. He looks, yeah, you're right. He looks kind of like he was on vacation in the Mediterranean before he shot this. He looks like really smoking hot. You know, like if, if you were gay, you would do him. But well, he's so like, overly tanned, he looked like George Hamilton. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Like, or, or let him blow you or something like that. You know, it's like crazy. No, not, not that we're like that. We're straight guys. But I'm saying Harry Grant really looked like yeah. magnificently like yeah, something hetero. <laughs> and I knew it would get their fucking laughter. He spit out his fucking lungs. Hey, so, that's what we do. <laughs> we don't have any problems with that stuff, whatever. <laughs> no, I mean he looked really great in this but what's up with that tan? Well, I guess it's supposed to be in the south of France or whatever the fuck it is. Well, it's set in the French for every year, but I've seen so many films that work. You know, Bordeaux films, for instance. Yeah, this is just the feel is not. It should be a French feel, like you talk about French crime films. Yeah. And the feel of it is very British. It's not even so much American. It's very British. Now, yes, Hitchcock's still there. The innuendo is still there. The undercurrent is still there. The subversion of character roles is still there. But it's just, it's not lively. You know, Hitchcock can be lively. This was, like, flat. It's flat. But then, like, a couple of years later, Hitchcock does one of my favorite. Oh, that's a great one, yes. Yeah. All right, where are we going next? So, and a fair to remember, believe it or not, 1957. Oh, joy, it's another maudlin weepy where Deborah Kerr of the Stuart Granger King Solomon's Mines, which I just watched today. You know, it's funny, I, I saw it, I was like, oh, I don't have the uh, the 1937 one. I haven't seen that in ages. So yeah. I watched that, and it was great. I was like, oh, this is a really good, you know, old type, almost like the Nigel Bruschi jungle adventure film. And I was like, Paul Robeson's in that? But, you know, he's playing a king, and, you know, it, it was actually like, Okay, other than all the singing that he does, uh, those of you who don't know Paul Robeson, he was kind of a cross between um, Nat King Cole and, for the activism, because he was kind of an activist, Harry Belafonte. An opera singer. Yes, he, was, he had a deep... I, don't, I wouldn't call him a bass, he was more of like a baritone, but he was that deep, throaty voice. So they gave him a bunch of songs, which are kind of silly, but... You know, really good stuff. I enjoyed the shit out of this. So I'm like, ah, let me watch the, the 1950 one that I just mentioned. And, oh, my God, does that fall flat? I remember it being so much better. 
I'm like, man, compared to the 1937 one, the 1951 sucks. Anyway, that just happened today. That's why I came up here. So anyway, uh, Deborah Kerr of that Stuart Granger, King Solomon's Minds that I was complaining about, our David Hemming shows Eye of the Devil and our Jackie Bissett shows Casino Royale, meets artist and rich fuck Grant on a cruise, falls for him, meets his saucy old mother and falls even harder, but of course there's complications. Kerr is involved with grouchy misogynist Richard Dennings of the Mr. and Mrs. North TV series, 50 sci-fi films Target Earth, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Creature with the Adam Brain, The Black Scorpion, and Corman's Twice Told Tales, who rather uncharacteristically takes the news fairly gracefully and remains somewhat supportive throughout the rest of the film. Grant is interviewed on TV being involved with some other boring broad, who cares? Anyway, they cook up this crackpot before sunrise idea of meeting up in a year at the Empire State Building, what is this, King Kong, to see if they're still with their respective lovers or if they, quote, really are meant to be together. Only a woman could have cooked up something that convoluted and dumb instead of going with your gut in the first damn place. So even that nonsense eventually works out, but just like before sunrise, they never meet up. Grant is there waiting. Kerr races over to meet him. Bam, she's hit by a bus. Welcome to New York, bitch. So now she's crippled for life. Grant goes back to painting full-time. She commissions one from him. He finds out she's stuck in a chair, but they have a supposed happy ending anyway. Yeesh. I don't get this kind of shit. Does it make people happy to see folks with more miserable lives than their own? It has to be some kind of weird schadenfreude thing. Director Lear McCarry did the Marx Brothers duck soup and the awful truth before degenerating into shit like this. People love this. I do not understand it. What's your take? Well... I, I, I understand that people love this film, and I respect that people love this film. It's, uh, it's, uh... <laughs> that says it all right there. <laughs> a, no, no, no. I'm trying to think, though. I'm trying to get my words together. It's, um, it's that fucking Donner. Yeah. And I just caught on to a little tidbit. His wife at the time didn't like him smoking, and, um, she asked him to go to hypnotherapy to like stop smoking yeah um, I, i'm sure that made the fucking guy agitated so <laughs> like i'm always smoking dear you know and that's a terrible accent i'm sorry but um can't be worse than the one i opened the show with <laughs> uh, that was, you know that was better than mine so, uh, but that being said I, I respect a lot of people like this movie. I understand a lot of people like this movie. It's just not a, a big movie for me. Not, not a big picture. Yeah, these kind of like miserable dramas, I just don't understand it. But anyway. Pride and the Passion. Yes, 1957, The Pride and the Passion. If Fitzcarraldo wasn't actually about anything, like the cisterns struggle of man's attempt to impose order on chaos and bring culture to the uncivilized, and didn't have either Werner Herzog or the great Klaus Kinski, who we devoted an entire show to, to its credit, you might wind up with a pointless piece of crap like this. Stanley Kramer, who gave us our Tony Curtis shows of Defiant Ones and our Tony Perkins shows on the beach, dumps an ill-fitting cast into this aimless, big-budget, quote, adventure nonsense, where Grant is a British naval man sent to Spain to pick up an arranged loan of a big-ass cannon to use against Napoleon. Problem is, of all people, Frank Sinatra and his roving-eyed girlfriend, Sophia Loren, both horribly miscast as Spanish Pancho Villa types, are using it to fight the frogs themselves so they won't give it up unless he helps them free a Spanish city first. The rest of the snooze fest is a sub-Fitzcarraldo affair where they have to lug this monster of a cannon through mountains, rivers, and such like, while Frankie ponders putting Giancana and the boys on Ponzi Grant for getting Loren's loins all afire. 
They even throw fucking religion into this with a long sequence involving the church and some bishop, completely King of Kings-style choral music. Oh, my God. We did entire shows on both Sinatra and Loren and managed to avoid covering this piece of cellular overspend every time. Finally sitting down to it for this show only proves why. Again, what the fuck happened to society in the 50s? Conservatism sucks. What's your take? <laughs> it is probably one of the most unusual films that uh, fans of Frank Sinatra, Sophia Loren, and Cary Grant have never seen. And it probably needs to be put back out there on Blu-ray so people can say, what the fuck, again. You know, as we discussed in two of our shows, our uh, Sinatra and Loren shows, it's just like it's so strangely miscast. And it was a box office bomb. The thing is, more of the drama came behind the scenes because allegedly Grant and Sinatra were both banging Loren and... Uh, Yes, I'm sorry, folks. It's the reality of the world. So Sinatra and Grant were both having sexual relations with Sophia Loren. Mm-hmm. And then with Loren, it didn't last for Grant. But then Loren really liked Grant. And then that involved a lot of stuff with him. Grant didn't even want to come back and do his uh, his voiceovers for his like unfinished scenes. Like, you know, the, what do you call the, the post them. Yeah, post dubbing guy. He was like so pissed. I don't know what's going on. It's probably one of the strangest movies ever made. And that says a lot. Yeah, and then don't forget, she wound up cast in Houseboat after that because they were involved in this movie. And by then, of course, they weren't. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she wound up being cast in Houseboat, and, and but they were in they were in a relationship anymore, which yep. must have been a bitch. Yeah, and you could tell on screen from that one. <laughs> so anyway, the very no, actually, I got kissed them for me first, but the very Spanish France Sinatra. <laughs> anyway, no, well, I think Frank kind of pulled it off. Well, you know what? It's because of that swarthy Mediterranean thing. So like, well, I guess I could sort of pull it off, but it's Frank Sinatra. He's like, hey, I'm over here. Where's that cannon? Can I get your eyes off my girl? <laughs> like, really? Yeah, but it's Frank. He's gonna put Giancana and the boys on him or something. Or Sam Giancana. What the hell? <laughs> It's funny in retrospect. Kiss them for me, which is not a noir. Yes, kiss them for me. Well, if the bluesy artificiality of Mal Monroe didn't do it for you, how about the Anna Nicole Smith of the 1950s? Yep, the woman who made Pepla Hercules and the Crimson Executioner himself, Mickey Hargitay, build her a huge-ass mansion, only to screw around him with a squirmy entertainment lawyer, among others, spend some time with Anton LaVey in the Church of Satan, and get her head severed clean off driving under a truck with a convertible is the, quote, sex symbol for memory-obsessed men who don't mind a huge hunk of beef, squeeze 10 pounds of shit into a 5-pound sack, putting on the world worst impression of the already fake shit Marilyn Monroe. Crass, blowsy, and only half a step up from low-rent taxi dancer Mamie Van Doren, I never got the appeal of Mansfield. At least Monroe looked kind of good in later, more naturalistic films like the cheesecloth over the camera lens The Misfits, and hell, Henry Miller found her fascinating, so there's that. Mansfield? Well, she narrated a couple of Mondo flicks. And check out this low-rent cast. Game show host Larry Blyden of What's My Line? Ray, my favorite Martian, Walston. 
Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes, Werner Klemperer, and mm-hmm. Leif Erickson, the mean old drunk carny from our Elvis shows Roustabout, whose other credits include such high points of cinema as William Castle's Straightjacket, the Bella Lugosi Night Monster, and the original Invaders from Mars. True to life, she's in this as a blowsy blonde, quote, lord to a hotel suite occupied by several military men on shore leave with the promise of getting her hands on a stash of nylon stockings. What the fuck? Is this Vichy France? Did they also offer chocolates for services rendered? <sighs> the plot of this, quote-unquote, such as it is, is about Watson trying to schmooze military-industrial complex asshole Erickson and worm his way into politics, while the others, sick of war, a post away from any action, which they relent on after hearing about Pearl Harbor. Meantime, they schmooze and chastely canoodle with Mansfield and other rather old-looking females. Oi. The 50s, everything you hate about society, culture, and cinema, all in one neat decade-long package. Directed by Stanley Donan, who gave a charade, our Sophia Loren shows Arabesque and Saturn 3. What's your take on this masterpiece? <laughs> well, it's not a masterpiece. It's kind of like, um, well, I have to Cary Grant does a couple of movies where he's like uh, really knocking them out of the park. He does this. Yeah. And, well, Stanley Donan has a... Uh, a mixed bag filmography. <laughs> no, he has an extensive filmography, and he's done some uh, really hot movies. And um, I don't know what happened with this one. Um, yeah, Jay Mansfield. Well, you know, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Susie Parker, whoever she was, I'll leave it at that. She was supposed to be some model. She's not terrible looking, but you know, it's just like whatever. Yeah, you know, this kind of. Edge of post-war kind of thing. This doesn't really have any... Uh, I didn't like it. Yeah. So, 1958, Indiscreet. It's unusual for the weather to be so muggy this time of year. Yes, I read an article the other day that claimed the world's weather was changing. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yes, isn't it? And on that ever more pertinent piss take on the Republican response to global warming and its palpable impact on our lives and economy, we delve into this sorry substitute for a sassy sex comedy from the inescapably inept Stanley Donan of Kiss Them For Me, who tries gamely to redeem himself for his many missteps with Charade, or Sophia Loren shows Arabesque, and Saturn 3. An already aging Ingrid Bergman of our Humphrey Bogart shows Casablanca, Hitchcock's Notorious, Spellbound, and Under Capricorn, and Murder on the Orient Express from our Sean Connery, Tony Perkins, and Jackie Bissett shows, is a tad long in the tooth to be playing a spinster actress looking for love. She winds up falling hard for, at best, serial monogamous Grant, who loves the pussy but has no interest in settling down. He has a fake line that he's separated but can't get her to divorce him, but it's just a cover. She only knows the cover story, but doesn't mind. He's watering her lawn, and that's good enough for her, particularly since he dresses like frumpy Francis throughout, and they both wear fucking pajamas like children and old folks do. The big dramatic hook here is when he gets a transfer to New York City for a bit. Someone tells her the truth about him, and she gets pissed off, throwing down some absurd ruse that she's fucking someone else, which winds up being her old gardener to make him jealous or whatever. He proposes anyway, freeze frame on her fat face, and yeesh. Is this what passed for romantic comedy in the uptight conservatives in the 50s? Old folks yak it up? Total crap. Makes Notorious seem like it came from another planet entirely. <laughs> what was your take on this one? Well, I do like some Stanley Donner films, but this, this is not one of them. Um, yeah, like three of them. He did were great. <laughs> wow. But, but I thought this was a throwback to a earlier time. Yeah. 
and and probably not what Cary Grant needed to make at this point in time in his career, mm -hmm. 1958. But he would not make too many pictures passes. Yeah, so, probably because he was getting films like these. Yeah. So. 1958 is Houseboat. We covered this total piece of shit in our Sophia Loren show. Actually written by the wife Cary Grant was screwing around over with Loren just prior to the filming of this, this cottage industry of nepotism features Grant as a widow flustered father of three little brats he didn't have much contact with who he's belatedly trying to become a proper father to. Obviously the kids realize he's full of shit, one of them runs away and winds up with expat Loren, another runaway who's skipping out on her folks so she can, quote, experience America easy rider style and presumably it's a similar result. This brings our two leads together. The kids become attached to her. He hires her as a nanny despite her inability to cook, keep house, or manage children in the first place. And unfunny sub-screwball comedy mishaps occur, leaving Grant living on the titular houseboat and, yes, married to this boulderized Mediterranean nincompoop. Hogan's Heroes' Colonel Clink, Werner Klemperer, is the biggest name in this otherwise save the bizarre commissioning of 60s soul man Sam Cooke to do the rather subpar theme song. Like Dervigite did for Bridget Bardot, who we also did an entire show on, this one takes a saucy European sex goddess and constrains her into the safe, traditional moral values straitjacket, thereby negating the very naturalistic and unselfconsciously sexual elements that made these women famous and adored in the first damn place. Conservative America has always been a wrong-headed way of life and way of viewing the world, and these terrible films from the height of the pre-Tea Party MAGA hegemony over our culture are perfect examples of exactly why you should never be allowed to set the rules for the more developed and cultured, or if you prefer, anyone who didn't marry their sister, breed, and homeschool their web-footed progeny. <laughs> What's your take on this stinker? You, you always thought this one. <laughs> so, um... After all these ones in a row? Yeah, well... The 50s suck. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, as we said in our Sophia Loren show, you know, Carrie had a thing with Sophia and it, it flamed out. Mm -hmm. But they were, they were contracted to make this movie. So, which would have been awkward to say the least. But mm -hmm. being, being the professionals that they are, they made this film. And you pretty much described everything about the movie. You can't tell because they're such professional actors that they have like an amazing fiery relationship that flamed out. Although you can really see it on Cary Grant's part. Mm -hmm. He's, he's exasperated. He's exasperated. He's guarded. And, but she's being so feel around. She's like, I'm going to do everything I can to make everyone happy. Mm -hmm. Meaning the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's well, it's a fluff movie as it is. Mm -hmm. But um, what more can either one of us say? Yeah. No. No. So things get a lot better now. 1959, North by Northwest. Yes. Arguably the scenic non of Hitchcock films. This one has all the trimmings. Mistaken Identity, International Spies, those amazing Soul Bass title credits, a Bernard Herrmann score, Dutch Angles, multiple locales, tracking zooms, loaded sexual innuendo and double entendre, the ubiquitous Hitchcock cameo, paranoia, and... And, and gay James Mason and Martin Lennon. Oh yeah, we'll get there too. And in understanding that innocence is never a defense against malfeasance who know how to manipulate, quote, the law and quote authority figures to everyone's disadvantage save their own 
Hello, 2023. And check out the cast. Mission Impossible and Space 1999's Martin Landau, also of Slasher Alone in the Dark, Without Warning, our exploitation show's Black Gun, and our Sean Connery show's Meteor. Les Tremaine, quote, mentor from Shazam, narrator on our Elvis show's Harem Scarum and Girl Happy, and star of 50 sci-fi flicks The Monster of Pedris Blancus, The Andrew Red Planet, and The Slime People. James Mason of our Stanley Kubrick shows Lolita, our Tony Perkins and Richard Benjamin shows Last of Sheila, our Charlotte Rampling shows Georgie Girl, our Charles Bronson and French Crime shows Cold Sweat, and our Michael Caine shows The Marseille Contract are all part of this cast. I'm a big girl in all the right places, too. Ava Marie Saint, whose only other role of note was as the British schoolmaster's wife in our Richard Burton show's The Sandpiper, is a surprisingly sexy double agent who both bedevils and bewitches Grant, culminating in the infamous train entering the tunnel denouement. Can you blame him? There are so many absurdist Kafka-esque twists and turns of the pretzel-like plot here, it's pointless to even try to recount them all, but the broad strokes are that a chance mistake leaves Grant as the target of a fifth columnist spy ring, and a fall guy time and time again. Cops don't believe him. His own mother doesn't believe him. He Mm. winds up publicly photographed, knife in hand, at a UN assassination. The authorities are after him. The commies are after him. He can't trust anyone, even the few allies that he finds. He winds up strafed by a crop duster, hanging off Mount Rushmore, and hunted, harassed, and assaulted at every turn. So attuned to aesthetic as to place homosexually coded baddies Mason and Landau in a Frank Lloyd Wright house on a promontory, this damn film is so relentless it's absurd. There's more plot packed into this one film than any three others you could name. And while Notorious is really suggestive, and To Catch a Thief is easily his filthiest dialogue-wise, Saint and Grant scenes here go way beyond American cinema of the era, like so much of Hitchcock's hearkening back to the days of pre-code. Visual and bombastic, this is the example to show newcomers of what's so special about a Hitchcock film, and why he's such a great director on several levels, not just the pure technician level so many, inclusive of the man himself, accuse him of being. It's damn good. It, it actually is probably, ostensibly, the best Hitchcock film, just on an objective level. So, what's your take? Yeah, I, I have very, I have a few Hitchcock favorites. This is the best. Yeah. I agree. What can I add to what you said? I hate the word um, but you know it's it's a thinking process. Well, you would bring up the gay baddies, and I mentioned that. Well, no, only because Martin Landau, when I interviewed him a couple of years ago before he passed, I didn't want to ask that, and somebody asked it from the audience. He goes, "I will answer that." <laughs> And he said, well, it's up for interpretation. Yeah, no, it's coded. Which, which any good actor would, would answer a question like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's up for interpretation. Nothing is blatant here, but it's very obviously coded. No, it's very obviously coded. So what, I'll tell you something. By far, my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film is this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just said I, I like quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. A lot, quite a few. Uh, but th- this is by far, I mean, you're right. It's like, holy shit. Does it kneel paranoia? Does it, like, yeah, you said his own mother doesn't know, you know, to trust him. And the whole thing, you know, he, he meets Eva Marie Saint. And, like, can he even trust her? Mm-hmm. No. And then he can't. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing, though, with James Mason and Martin Landau. And there's like this whole deeper, 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 deeper thing. Oh, yeah, the bad guys. But there's like an inkling of 
some kind of subtext going on. Yeah, they definitely have a relationship. It's not they just... They definitely have right. some kind of relationship. And even Man from Uncle TV show, Leo G. Carroll, Leo G. Carroll, who pops up as just like a throwaway character, actually winds up being a very important character. Yes. But you know what I liked about this? I, I like films... One, one of my personal things are films where people are uh, just like so fucking prosecuted. They're so uh, up against the wall. They have nowhere to back up. Uh, Mickey won a uh, movie with Warren Beatty. I think it's an Arthur Penn movie. Mm-hmm. Just the name, you know, one. But this this is just crazy shit because, all right, oh, it's a Cary Grant movie from, you know, 1959, directed by... No, it's an incredible Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah, picture a Mission Impossible film nowadays, like a Tom Cruise one, but even crazier in a lot of ways because, yeah, you know, he's so persecuted and it's like everybody, look, he looks so guilty to everybody's eyes. Right, and that's, that's the thing. I'm interested to see where they're going to the next... Uh, apparently, they're going books with the next two Mission Impossible movies to, like, heavy persecution. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious about that. Well, he's already been there a couple of times, like Rogue Nation and things like that, but yes. yes. They, they can go farther, I'm sure they will. <laughs> They're evil. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, it's like, damn, every time you turn around, it's like, like you know... He, he keeps digging himself deeper, and or it's not really his fault. It's just... It just not his fault. He just keeps getting set up and falling into it. But, and you and talk about the sexiness of even Rosemary. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, she's not my idea of, like, this gorgeous girl. I think Grace Coe's a much better-looking girl if you look into that kind of blonde from that era. Mm-hmm. But holy shit, this woman is just, like, oozing sex. I say, for the 50s, that era, holy shit. I mean, and for an American actress, you know, compared to Bridget Bardot, forget it. But, you know, holy yeah, yeah. crap. I, I just, I watched this again for the show, I'm like... Damn, no wonder I was like there just from this movie, nowhere else. But yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was in Brando and on the waterfront and a couple other things. And you know, even Marie Saint has a long CV. But this movie, this movie, holy crap! Yeah, Hitchcock was very subversive, especially in the days of you know the super uptight code, moral values bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, he really slipped stuff in left and right and got away with it which is amazing. There's no other directors really were able to do that. you got coded things, but not like this. You mentioned something about Mission Impossible, too, which is uh, this is Prey, the TV show. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of subversive, subversive stuff. Like, he checks into a hotel. So, he, the CIA contact, who <laughs> and Roger Thorndike doesn't even know anything about the CIA because he's like a fucking guy. Yeah, it was an accident. The whole thing was he got paged. The they paged accident. the guy that was supposed to be a spy who didn't exist. It was just a cover. And but, he happened to be going for whatever, a phone call at the same time. So they assume it's him, and the rest of the film just goes nuts. Right, right. So, so like, there's a knock on the door. Here's your suit. What are, you, what are you talking about? This is your suit. You have to wear the suit. Yeah, the whole thing is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we... we we have Psycho and then Frenzy and what's that one with Robert Cummings? That's very good too. Really, really good thriller. You know, there, there's there's a quite a few good Hitchcock films. This one is the pinnacle. Yeah, actually, the script writer said, "Oh, I set out to make the ultimate Hitchcock film," and you know what? 
they succeeded. And like I said, the Saul Bass credits are there, which became a thing around this time. And the yeah. Bernard Harmon score. And, you know, just everything is there. You know, the Technicolor, the, the widescreen scope. I mean. And, and you know what? You know what? Things we take for granted today because this movie exists. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Mission Impossible again. Landau was cast in that, and that show probably derived a lot from this film. Yeah, Carrie gets off a bus. Middle of nowhere. Now, back in this time period, a lot of people used rear projection. Mm-hmm. So Alfred Hitchcock decided, now let's go out there wherever the fuck they were. Was it Kansas or something, yeah. Kansas, yeah. And so he gets off, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. He's, you know, he's waiting for guy with information. Cars pass, they don't stop. Buses pass, they don't stop. And then the sharecropping plane comes with, uh, what's that sh- Shit. Look at crop duster, you know, they put out the pesticides or whatever. Yeah. What a scene. Yeah, that's crazy. What a scene. I mean, like, we never thought, but here's another thing, too, with this movie. We never thought, ever, Cary Grant was a man of action. Yeah, maybe Holiday, where he was doing those backflips and things, but that's really it. Yeah, because his life is at stake. Because his life is at stake. I was like, holy fuck, run, motherfucker. <laughs> and he's running through this cornfield, and this plane is buzzing him. And, you know, I'm obviously there's it's stunts, they do things, but it looks believable. Yeah, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and, 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 okay, go back to James Mason. Wow, what what a incredible role. And Martin Lando was magnificent. Yes, he it was. was. It was. It was like... Say what you would about Martin Landau through all his career. Everybody has ups and downs. Yeah. He was magnificent. As oh, yeah. And he looks dangerous. He Just looks... look in his eyes. Like, yeah, oh my yeah, God. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I was getting so excited. I'm almost coming. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you okay there? No, I was just kidding. I'm kidding, guys. No, Martin Landau has lettered has this look in his eyes, you're right, that have not only malefeasance, that did like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to fuck with this guy. He's very no. serpentine, yeah. but it's not just like, you mentioned Vladek Shabal, who played a lot of those kind of roles. Yeah. It's not just, okay, he's sleazy, you know, he's like, he might stab you in the back. No, this guy is like, ooh, okay, <laughs> you know? It's like, it's a really, really good film. You know who's another interesting character in this? Edward Platt. Who uh, Edward Plant was uh, Get Smart, right? Uh, yes, he was. You're correct. Yeah, and he is in this. He the chief. Another guy. Yeah, he was chief. He was another guy in this who had like a straight role. But here, here's the thing: Hitchcock movie on the edge of the '60s. So Carrie and Eva Marie Saint are in the train car, sleeping car. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. The stuff that goes on there. And do you think in a way, I mean, obviously there were other films still on trains, but do you think in a way it influenced the not that long after from Russia with Love? Remember that yes. crazy train sequence in there? Yeah. It might have like hailed to some extent the idea from this. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really, really good. And if you're going to see one Hitchcock film, everybody says Rear Window. Yes, I've come to like it over the years for sure. My wife loves it. You love it. But it's just... 
it's no comparison. This is the film to watch if you want to see a Hitchcock film. And then you can go to other things like, okay, well, I want to see Psycho. I want to see, I would recommend Notorious. I love Notorious. You know, there's films in this in filmography that you do want to see and hit. Mm-hmm. Even something like Foreign Correspondent or Young and Innocent. You know, there are really good films in there. Lady Vanishes, 39 Steps. But this one is basically the scenic one on. This is the one. They set out to make the ultimate Hitchcock film and they succeeded. All the ones after and before kind of lead and point to this one. So, there you go. It's a, a, a way, it's almost the ultimate Cary Grant movie. Yeah, that's true too. Because he's putting in, and I think I think Hitchcock probably worked him really fucking hard. He's putting in all the essence of Cary Grant from the previous 20 years of him working on film. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? I want you to try harder. <laughs> And, and by trying harder, he wanted him to pull back. And if anybody knows what I'm talking about, for an actor, trying harder means to pull back. Yeah, not acting so hard and obviously, but actually yeah. restraining yourself a bit and underplaying it. So, yes, that's true. Yeah, and I think that's what happened here. This is by far the best Hitchcock film to me. Yeah, I believe that. And And... and it's not my favorite, but it is the best on objective terms. And it's definitely up there. Okay. I, I think it's probably one of the best Cary Grant performances. I agree with that. It's an actor. Yeah. So, 1959, Operation Petticoat. We, co- yeah, we covered this one in our Tony Curtis show. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Jamie Lee Curtis, who we also devoted a show to, starred in a short-lived late 70s TV series based on the same awful film. Grant is a submarine captain in World War II whose rattle trap of a sub was sunk by the Japanese, and it's now in a perpetual state of salvage and repairs. Making things worse is that Robert Simon, J. Jonah Jameson of the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man, is Grant's superior who reassigns Grant's usual crew to other boats during the repairs. His new staff for the operation are a bunch of schmucks like Sharpster and Layabout Tony Curtis and a guy who swipes naval property for his own restaurant things get so ridiculous they actually commission a witch doctor to bless their patch job of a sod which apparently works this scavenged crew of miscreants and malcontents proceeded to asinine and supposedly funny nonsense like shooting down onshore trucks instead of enemy subs winding up saddled with a group of rescued navy nurses inclusive of the smoking hot marion ross fucking mrs cunningham from happy days seriously and taking on and taking on friendly fire from equally incompetent fellow naval vessels by shooting the nurse's lingerie at them. This actually convinces the other ship to cease fire, exclaiming that the Japanese have nothing like this, i.e. big tits. Uh, yeah, sure. Hardy har har? Bewitched Zick Sargent and Kevin McLeod, co-check the Night Stalker from our Dan Curtis in the 70s show, also appear. Awful, unfunny shit for the uptight and milk toast, like most 50s and early 60s American cinema. It's bad. What's your take? It wasn't great. You know, Tony Curtis was very, very popular around this time period. Yeah. And they well, they decided, well, Cary Grant's like having a resurrection in his popularity. Let's put Cary and Tony together. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not a great movie. It's it's it's, it's fluff. It's fluff. Yeah, it's fluff. So that touch of mink. You have rare qualities. You're direct, sincere, uncomplicated. You're the type of woman who brings out the worst in a man, his conscience, and a man's conscience is generally in opposition to his best interests. <laughs> a homosexual icon and everyone's favorite 50s prude, Doris Day, by this time adding a middle-aged jolliness and crow's feet to her beady eyes and grown-up Sandra D act, 
joins Bottom of the Barrel director Delbert Mann, who gave us our Tony Perkins and Sophia Laurentio's abominable Desire Under the Elms and Precious Little Else, for this overrated early 60s rom-com bomb. Grant is cast in the Rock Hudson role as some rich fuck with unexplained UN connections who splashes her surprisingly dowdy interview clothes with his car, comes on to her for some ungodly reason, and she proceeds to put him off and make excuses as usual, even when she accepts an invitation to a dirty weekend in Bermuda where she breaks out in a rash at the very idea of having to put out, <laughs> then gets so loaded she falls off the balcony. So of course there's a quote, happy ending where they're popping out kids, yeesh. He would have been better off with brassy lunch lady Audrey Meadows, but that's the early 60s for you. Day, who started in a trio of questionable separate bedroom, no bathroom, sexless sex comedies from our Rock Hudson show, and a few similar stinkers like Please Don't Eat the Daisies, The Glass Bottom Boat, and With Six You Get Egg Roll, huffs, puffs, and shakes her jowls exasperatedly throughout, inclusive of a date at a Yankee game where they sit in a dugout with the stiffest actor on camera, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and Yogi Berra, who silly doesn't get more than a single line to mangle in his usual lovable manner, but whose huge ears are unmistakable, while perpetually sous gig young of our Humphrey Bogart shows The Desperate Hours and our Oliver Reed shows The Shuttered Room and television comedy regular Meadows strut and fret about as our respective leads wingmen. Even Gomez Adams in the filling Riddler from Batman, John Aston, appears as a sleazy unemployment office case agent with the Hotspur who she cockteases to make Grant jealous. Apparently, Rock Hudson was fully expecting to take the lead in this one, but for whatever reason, director Mann wanted Grant, who brought in Meadows because he loved the honeymooners for whatever reason. It's one big clusterfolk, both behind the cameras and on screen. You know, Doris Day films of Rock Hudson are bad, but the one she did without him? The man too much, arguably aside, because at least Hitcher had the good humor to make the talentless, quote, singer, belt out her big hit, K Sarah, Sarah, so brassily, she's practically screaming it, are absolutely abominable. Rock really was a talent, because it's obvious the extent to which those films are referred is all about him. But yeah, so what was your take on this one? It was bad. Well, it's revered by many people, especially in the, uh, the gay contingent. Yes, so, so, they love Darstow. <laughs> yeah, and, and Carrie and the Dead Touch of Mink. And so, you know, I, I don't want to knock it too much. I would say not a great Carrie Grant movie. Next one up is, yeah, Charade. This is actually a step up. Stanley Donan of our Sophia Lorenzo's Arabesque gives us this enjoyable, a cheesy Hitchcockian spy thriller come romance between a visibly aging Grant and a still attractive perpetually twig-like and stiff Audrey Hepburn of our Humphrey Bogart show Sabrina, our Tony Perkins show's Green Mansions, and our Jackie Bissett show's Two for the Road. Much is made of their age discrepancy, though she was in her 30s at the time, nowhere near as horribly mismatched as she was with Bogey and the other geriatric fella in Sabrina. In an opener strangely reminiscent of our David Hemming show's Fragment of Fear, Hepburn finds herself gaslighted on a conspiratorial scale. She finds her place ransacked. She discovers her estranged husband has multiple passports under different names. He's also been murdered, and now she's being stalked by a group of weirdos who want the money he apparently stole. Apparently on her side are the suave Grant, a rando who aids her out of seeming gallantry, and G-man Walter Matthau, while the cruel stalkers include drawling hillbilly James Coburn of our Steve McQueen show's Magnificent Seven, Hell is for Heroes and The Great Escape, our Richard Burton show's Candy, our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins show's Last of Sheila, our Sophia Loren show's Firepower, our Michael Crichton show's Looker, and our Whoopi Goldberg show's Sister Act 2, and metal claw-handed George Kennedy of our Charles Bronson and Donald Sutherland show's Dirty Dozen, our Tony 
Tony Curtis shows Boston Strangler. Our Clint Eastwood shows Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And the airport films reviewed over at thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. And Nico Maxarakis's Nightmare at Noon from my interview with Nico at Third Eye Cinema. Needless to say, all is not as it seems. Mathau, who go on to much better work in later films like our Joe Don Baker shows Charlie Varick, Taking a Pelham 123, The Laughing Policeman, and Hopscotch, gives his most disinvested performance on record, cartoonishly repeating the line, they left me there, at least six times in less than a minute, with decidedly flattened affect out of the corner of his mouth. It's actually one of the worst Tenemont performances ever caught on film in a major Hollywood motion picture. It's that bad. About the closest thing outside of Brian De Palma, who we did a whole show on to a Hitchcock film, this one is more cheesy of entertaining American spy film than it is any sort of, quote, romance between the leads. But I have to say, if Hepburn was ever endearingly appealing, this is the one. She nibbles on Grant's neck and hangs all over him girlishly in quieter moments, and nearly belies the prudishness of her full-length burlap sack-sporting Reem of the Jungle Girl of Green Mansions with a, for someone as normally stiff as her, surprising authenticity in such moments. I was actually surprised. It's not the great film, but I did enjoy it. Well, you know, one of the problems I always have with this movie is how ugly it fucking looks. It really looks terrible. Yeah, that's true. And, and I, I'm not sure what was going on with that. I mean, there are many stories that you know, the producers or the production company was it who they said they were, and you know, this thing was PD for a lot public domain mm-hmm. for a long time. Yes, it was. And, and and it was like it looks like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's no reason why a movie with this kind of cast should look like shit. Well, I think they cleaned it up a bit because I, I think it was on Criterion now or something like that. Which... Oh yeah, well, but I. Recently, they, very recently, they, yes. Like, very recently, they cleaned it up. They probably figured out who owned it. Truthfully, <laughs> <laughs> Charade is a very interesting film because uh, Carrie's older, mm-hmm. silvery hair now, and though I've never been warm to Hepburn, it kind of worked. Yeah, I mean, this is probably her most winning performance. Yeah, and, and then. Uh, we have the oddball characters of Mathau and Coburn and Kennedy as the villains, so we, shall we say. And, uh, well, they're interesting fucking characters. <laughs> Come on, Kennedy's yeah, the, running with a metal claw, and Coburn's doing like, you know, pretending he's like, eh, I'm, I'm a hillbilly from Texas or whatever. It's ridiculous, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's amusing. It's weird, it's weird stuff. It's weird stuff. Yeah, this is from the director of Singing in the Rain, so yeah. <laughs> Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, I just wish the movie was better, but it's not. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a great film. But for what it is, I was like walking out like, oh, God, this is going to suck. I'm like, you know what? I kind of liked it for what it is. <laughs> so anyway, so Carrie, uh, this is, what was that year? That was 1963. So you already saw there was a gap. He kind of shuts himself down and doesn't do much. Actually, his last film was three years later, 1966, Walk, Don't Run. I came about sharing the apartment, but you're a man. Yes, I suppose so. I prefer sharing an apartment with a woman. So do I. Your wife is broad-minded, but other people might not understand. You're married? I think you might have told me. Why? What did you have in mind? For his final film, Grant tries to bring a very 50s Rock Hudson, Tony Curtis-style comedy, and we did show some both of them, to the height of the swinging 60s to decidedly mixed result, and that's being generous. 
Grant is supposed to be some rich businessman in Tokyo for a conference or some such. Unfortunately, all the hotels are booked up because whatever genius set this up decided to hold it during the Tokyo Olympics. He hears someone is looking for a roommate, so he drops by the place, currently rented by exploitation regular Samantha Egger of everything from Cronenberg's The Brood and the Uncanny, Armando Crispino's Etruscan Kills Again, Curtains, The Exterminator, and Demonoid. Hell, she was even in David Hevner's Raging Cajun, and you can hear all about that in my career-spanning interview with Hevner over at Third Eye Cinema. Apparently, she was looking for a female roomie, despite not specifying that in the ad, but she managed to fast-talk his way into a deal. Unfortunately, she's got a real pole up her ass and lays down all sorts of anal-retentive rules and an OCD schedule for bathroom usage, cleaning duties, etc. Making this worse is his meeting, and despite the guy being a total dick to him, subletting half of his half of the tiny apartment to architect and Olympic contender Jim Hutton, TV's Hillary Queen, and co-star of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Psychic Killer, and I reviewed Psychic Killer over a third eye too, and father of Nero Wolf's Archie Goodwin, Timothy Hutton. Did they actually have a power walking event? Because that's what he's there for. The usual prudish Doris Day, Frankie and Annette, Sally Field, Gidget film, quote, sex a sex comedy nonsense ensues. And for some reason, Grant drops his whole reason for being in Japan and decides to play matchmaker between these two, despite both being amazingly unappealing emotional basket cases with nothing whatsoever <laughs> in common, actually do wind up together somehow. Miko Taka of the David Niven Paper Tiger and John Frankenheimer's The Challenge is the attractive co-worker who Edgar carpools with. I like her sticking her tongue out at Grouchy Grant early on. And George Takai is the bemused and overly friendly police sergeant who they report their, quote, scandalous indiscretion of cohabitation to. But it's like our Elvis film show's double trouble minus the spy spoof elements, an extremely anachronistic and ill-fitting attempt to marry Maud, late 60s youth culture, with an outdated, safe, double-beds-without-a-toilet 50s moral sensibility. Harmless, but utterly ridiculous and not very winning. Is anyone really surprised this was also the final film of director Charles Walters, whose most questionably notable work was our Frank Sinatra show's High Society? Yeah, it ended a lot of careers, and that should say something right there. <laughs> what was your take? Well, this is the last film of... Uh... That Carrie did, yeah. Cary Grant's career before it became a Fabergé. Yes, that's it. He was hucking perfume and shit. Yep. Yeah, he was a Fabergé spokesperson. So, yeah, this is, yeah, everybody goes out on a note. James Cagney went out on a note. And, you know, some, sometimes people go out on a, I'm not going to do any more of this, but, but Cary wasn't a firm. You know, he, he wasn't ill. Oh, no, I think he stopped because one of his marriages, might have been the one to Diane Cannon, he had just had a kid and he figured he'd stay home and take care of it or whatever. Right, right, it was Diane Cannon, Cannon marriage. Very good. The Diane Cannon marriage, which actually, if you look into, she was also bopping uh, Jean-Paul Bermondo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, which... And he was tripping on LSD, which we didn't mention yet, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and Carrie was tripping on LSD. <laughs> well, Carrie was experimenting on this. Yes. Um, it was a thing. I don't know. I, I guess he just chose this to be his last movie ever. Well, remember, he wasn't even the you know romantic lead or anything approaching it in this film. He was kind of relegated to playing the father figure, putting these other two together. I'm like, what kind of role is that? So I could uh, see him saying, you know what, screw it, I'm done. Oh, I agree. So anything else you want to say about this masterwork or Samantha Egger's wonderful performance or <laughs> Jim Hutton's career? <laughs> no, no. We, we, we talk, we, I like Jim as uh, Elric Queen. I I'll like say that. Jim. I like Samantha. So Gary Grant was, uh, you know, things we didn't speak about 
was his experimentation with LSD. Mm-hmm. He, at some point, this is like common knowledge, apparently, he at some point decided, like, well, why not? Yeah, and remember, this isn't just like, ah, let's do lots of heavy drugs. It was, at the time, they were like, oh, look, some man-explaining substance, and you're going to get to be more creative. And all this. You know, the Beatles were doing it, and the Beatles influenced a lot of culture at that time. People forget. So, you know, it was a thing, and it was put up by ostensible college professors like Timothy Leary, and uh, I think even Jim Owsley, wasn't he involved with the college? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it was considered somewhat legitimate. It came out of the military, actually, believe it or not. The U.S. military was experimenting with LSD back in, I think it was the 40s and the 50s, on their soldiers, and not really saying anything like they usually do. And then it kind of leaked out to the public for a couple of years, possibly as a social experiment from the government. Who the hell knows? And then it disappeared, and they couldn't get the good stuff anymore. But, yeah, that's it was a thing at the time, just well, the defense. Well, well, Cary Grant did his experimentation through his uh, physician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his LSD experiences. Mm-hmm. through his physician, whoever the hell that was. And uh, but he said he said that really helped him. You know, he, it was probably there was a lot going on with that guy that we never knew. Mm-hmm. We'll never know. Maybe he was in pain. Maybe he, he was in uh, some kind of like deep, deep psychosis. Yeah, it might have been a psychological thing, you know. Yeah. Remember, Primal Scream Therapy came out at the time. Right. Yeah, John Lennon putting on songs like Mother and Cold Turkey. You know, this is, that was the time period. Remember they had the film The Trip that we covered in our uh, right. Peter Fonda show? Yeah. So, yeah. So he did this, and he unabashedly would, yeah, okay, I did this, and, uh, you know, let's move on. So, uh yeah, or even the mask. If you've seen that film, that was also about tripping on LSD with the help of a physician. I, I respect him a lot for coming out and saying, "Yeah, well, I did this," and you know, blah blah blah. A lot of people wouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't like, "Oh, I'm so ashamed, I'm so horrible." No, I didn't ruin my life with it. It's just like, okay, well, I did this, I tried it out, and whatever. You know, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. And like I said, there's something to respect there. I mean, not if you're just like a shameless piece of crap like uh, 45 there, but, you know, it, you don't have to be embarrassed by every goddamn thing you do like people like to do all the time. Oh, got to put you on public trial because you did this or you said that. or Who cares? You know, own up to it and there you go. Take responsibility and move on. <laughs> and I don't think, like I said, it, it wasn't just like, you know what, I'm going to shoot heroin. No, it was, he no. was trying to do something there. People were trying to do this in society back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was trying to find something. There was something going on with within himself that he couldn't figure out what was going on. And so probably was suggested he try this to uh, answer the questions. Anyway, that's our Carrie Grant show. Thank you so yes. much for listening. Yes. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy our Lord drawing we chat on Carrie Grant. Next time we will be starting off season fourteen, I believe, with Peter Wingard. Yes. Unfortunately, it'll probably be a shorter show if, if you guys are into these longer ones like this where they have a long career because he only did a couple of movies, some of which were actually more like walk-ons. And he, obviously he had two TV series, Department S and the related Jason King. And then he would pop up in things like, you know, the, the Hellfire Club episodes of the Avengers or, you know, he was in the Baron. And So we'll touch on a lot of these shows that we have mentioned in our British cult TV show and probably our Avengers show and things like that just along the way because that's what he did. But it's not a long one. It's like when we keep talking about doing a brew 
Bruce Lee one, it's the same thing. There's not a lot of ground to cover, but he's an interesting guy, and I think we both like him a lot. Yes. So uh, we'll get into that next time around. So if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, and like to join us in here, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also at Twitter, uh, at WeirdScenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. And we are basically anywhere you find your favorite podcast, but I will name off iTunes and Spotify and Amazon Podcasts, all over the damn place. Just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside Goldmine Podcast. And if you are particular with the iTunes folks, you look us up under ID 55340244. That's basically it. It's, you just look us up under Weirds Inside the Goldmine, uh, Third Eye Cinema Podcast. Weirds Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to close out on? Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you all for listening. And, you know, Karen Grant, he was uh, a Nikon of cinema. Oh, yeah. I think... Through our discussion tonight, if there's like one movie, one movie, it's North by Northwest. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. That's that's not only a good one, it's like, you guys got to watch this. And then go backtrack or forward track, whatever you choose to decide. Yeah, I mean, I could just name off a couple of favorites, like... You know, I had mentioned the two that he did with Joan Bennett were both rather good, surprisingly so. Mm. Oh, Big Brown Eyes was one, and the other one was uh, Wedding Present, which, you know, who's ever heard of those two? But they're really worth checking out. Topper was not a great film, but he's fun in it, for sure. The Awful Truth, Bringing Up Baby, of course. Holiday was surprisingly enjoyable and had a good message besides. The Hers Go Friday, of course, is a classic. Loads of fun. My Favorite Wife, The Philadelphia Story, of course, all of his Hitchcock films, especially Notorious and North by Northwest. I mean, the guy did a lot of good films. Yes, there were a lot of stinkers in there, especially in the 50s, which yeah. you know, we keep running into when we do anybody from the 50s, Sophia Loren, Tony Curtis, Rock Hudson, you know, there's a lot of garbage that came out then. But there was also good stuff. And, you know, we covered all that stuff tonight, and hopefully you will enjoy this and appreciate it and understand where we're coming from with a lot of stuff that we throw out as zingers, because you know, that was really a rough decade. And the, the boulderization and the tampering of Hollywood and this faux morality of the Hays Code and society yeah. at the time is just repugnant, and we do not want to go back there again. And unfortunately, some people are trying to drag us back there. So do your best. Vote and make sure they do not get into office. Fight them in the streets with uh, protests and, you know, complaints and letter writing, whatever else you got to do. And just make sure that we can stay in a free and open culture as opposed to some of the crap that we lived through back in the 50s, apparently, <laughs> uh, as these shows make apparent. So anyway, again, thanks again for joining us, and we will return soon. So anything else you want to say to close out, or are you good? No, no, we will, we will return soon with Peter Wingard. And thank you for listening. Uh, everything my partner has said is true. Hey, you know what? Cary Grant is a name for, I guess, uh, a name uh, associated with the uh, old-style Hollywood. But, you know, he's done some good movies, really good movies. And we we covered the good movies as well as the not-so-good movies tonight. And uh, that's what makes listening to our show so much fun. Yeah. Because... uh, 
I still think that if he had, because he, obviously he started earlier, yes. but if he had continued his career into the 70s like Rock Hudson did, you would have seen some really interesting stuff out of him, especially since, as far as I know, Rock wasn't going around like, hey, you know what, I'm tripping on acid, let me, let me get mod, and Carrie was trying to do that. So it's very possible that we would have seen some stuff like we mentioned in our Rock Hudson show towards the end, which was some of his most interesting work, to be honest. You know, the fact that he cut off in 66, or really, if you skip that one film, even three years earlier than that, you know, it's, it's a shame in a way. But then again... Oh, that's a good point. You know, it's a good, that's a good thing you brought up, though, because if, uh, if Carrie decided to keep working, he could have uh, very well have given us some interesting work as an actor. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, so that's our show, and we will see you next time. Peter Wingard, Yes, Jason King. And uh, those of you who are X-Men fans, that's where they got Jason Wingard, the mastermind from the Hellfire Club from. So we will see you next time. Thank you all for listening very much. Thank you. That was a fun one. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? 
a reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. So what's your excuse now? What excuse? <laughs> oh, God, you don't want to know. Everything possible happened in the last second. But anyway, so how are you doing? Oh, how, how, how are you first? <laughs> uh, I'm okay. Uh, you know, I'm gradually. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know how wonderful it is because I'm still, you know, basically I, I drove once or twice, but I'm letting her drive, and I'm still, uh, 
not moving my arm too much, keeping it within a rather limited range. Yeah, I saw the physical therapy people, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they put it in. They got to wait for the damn insurance. I still haven't heard anything from them. It's supposed to start next week. But uh, they're like, oh, yeah, just do these couple exercises, which is some stuff I was doing before. And two of them, no problem. I do them all the time. But the other one, I was like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> so I was like, forget it. So we'll see what happens. But, yeah, basically I'm doing okay. Yeah, I remember when my, my uh, pain management doctor said, oh, go go to this place, you know, mm-hmm. a physical therapy place in Hoboken. I'm like, okay, it's Hoboken, nice place. Yeah. They're all really young ladies, you know, working there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're going for their degree and whatever it is. And I remember the first time I went, I said, look, I got, here's the uh, prescription, and the, the, you know, I got sciatica, I got a t- disc issue. Mm-hmm. They made me do everything that hurt. <laughs> you sure you can't do this? And I'm like, no. I said, no. And I came back from my second visit, and they they, they, they wanted to charge me a shitload of money. I said, wait a minute. When I called before I came, mm-hmm. I asked what my copay is. Right. This is, a, you know, which was manageable. I know it's going to be more going to a place like that. I think it was like 60, I was told. Right. I went the second time, they said 75. Whoa. Said, what changed? Yeah. Well, and you only have four visits and this is your second I said so I saw the guy a month later I said I see you stopped going and I told him they raised the price on me and they didn't give me I will call them right now I have nothing really to do with them but I send a lot of patients there yeah so he spoke to the manager he says it's all cleared up you can go back so I went back I was always sorry about that it is 60 I said yeah but I paid 75 on my second visit what am I gonna do yeah you're not going to give me back $15, but the point is, <laughs> and I said, I only have two more of these. Well, your insurance only covers, I said, oh, you know what? You guys are causing me more pain. <laughs> I'm taking an Uber here yeah. and back home. And actually, you know what's weird? If I go anywhere in Jersey City, it could be $15, it could be $20, and not far. Yeah. If I go to, from here to Hoboken, it's like 6 bucks. <laughs> I'm like, I'll go to Hoboken. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sorry sorry about your arm. Yeah, PT. Uh... It's crazy because they, oh, they prescribed, like, I don't know what it was, like uh, 12 or 16 visits or something. And they're like, okay, we set you up for, <laughs> it's like eight. I'm like, okay, I guess that's what the insurance covered. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, for me, originally I was told, oh, you're going to have so many visits. You're going to feel like a new man. Mm-hmm. I, my thing is, I, I would have rather it would have been a guy, and maybe a middle-aged guy, like somebody who has experience with people in pain. Yeah, right. Probably the same with you. I don't, I don't know. Well, uh, they're all younger guys, but one guy there, I wanted to get him again specifically, so I had them put him on the schedule. Okay. Because right, he does, like, great massages and stuff like that, you know, because they're reaching for weird shit, like my uh, subscapular or whatever the hell was driving me nuts. It <laughs> so, was the funny thing. My first visit... She was an extreme hottie. Okay. And and, and like black leotard, black, skin tight, black, black, black. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start off with a massage. I'm like, lady. <laughs> <laughs> you know little places I go to sometimes. <laughs> and not at that time, not in a long time because of my back. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm like, geez, don't, you know. Yeesh. <laughs> well, I don't have to worry about that this time because the one that they set me up with originally that I saw for the evaluation <laughs> – I think she's a lesbian. My wife was she's like, wow, you got the scary one. What's the deal with her? I'm like, I don't know. 
<laughs> but yeah. So anyway, though, you know I have chronic sinus problems. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and last week was absolutely dreadful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had to go into work, and I was in the city on the worst day ever mm-hmm. with the air quality because of the Canadian fires. Right. And uh, it was outrageous. I remember. Yeah, I, I went into the lobby of the building, and I was like, oh, my God. And I couldn't accurately take a good photograph mm-hmm. with my iPhone of the haze and the orange. You know, like a show, like almost like a clear sky. Like I this. had the same problem. I was trying to take pictures of it because I was like, we're looking on fucking Mars. But, you know, it, it, they came out normal. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> but some people, it did work out. So I don't know. It depends on what you got. This is the 13. So yeah. I'm going, I, I might leave iPhones and go back to another one, but I don't know. The problem with the iPhone, there's so much support for it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, my wife tried one out, and I'm like, I don't like this at all. I'm so glad I got Androids. <laughs> mm. I used to be an Android Samsung. You know, it's the big competitor. And I used to love their photographs, but the support sucked. Yeah. You know, they, they say, when you had to do uh, an upgrade, I remember I had this beautiful, it was a little large for a Samsung Android. And it took beautiful pictures. And after several upgrades, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the iOS on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. But after several upgrades, they did away with this editing feature for photos, and all my pictures look like shit. I'm like, that's uh, why I got this phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. So anyway, yeah, back to my thing. I, it just exasperated it. I, I've been in, like, complete pain in my sinuses ever since then. Yeah. I mean, the smoke is abated. I, I hear it's coming back yeah. by early next week because... The winds change, the, yeah. Winds change. I do have to go in this week. Um, but, yeah, it was rough because, I mean, I remember I went out for a bit in the morning, and that was it. So I was like, okay, you know, I got the mask on, no big deal. Uh, you could smell the smoke everywhere, but it wasn't as horrible. Some of it was just, we saw people just walk around, like, dude, nothing's going on. I'm like, what are you fucking crazy? That was actually the morning I had to go for the evaluation. We're out there like 5.30 in the friggin'. Oh, oh, yeah, come on in at 5.30 in the morning or something stupid like that. I'm like, what? Or maybe it was 7. I forget. It was super early either way. I'm like, what the hell? I was like, well, yeah, we just did for evaluations. There was actually like cops there because apparently they have like the, uh, whatever they call the rookies when they go in for the training camp. They were all like signed up. There's like, oh, so you're here for the police? I'm like, no. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it was like hours later. I'm in the afternoon. I'm like, I hear myself breathing. I'm like, I'm wheezing. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm indoors for the whole afternoon. So I guess it just, all the smoke came in on your clothes or whatever and just stayed there. Because I was like, yeah, and you're out there the whole day in, in New York itself. Because like, that was the worst. Oh, you were bad right here. But in Manhattan itself was like the epicenter somehow. <laughs> the deal was with the winds or, you know, the heat trap, whatever the hell kept it there. But oof. Yeah, yeah. When I when I got home, I went smelling uh, over here in Jersey City, and the next day, and then it abated. But like I said, but uh, there's a really good. Somebody had it on Facebook, so I said, "Is this real?" And apparently, it is. It's called Air Now. Okay. It's an EPA app mm-hmm. from the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. And, it, and you put in your zip, mm-hmm. and it, it it tells you what the air quality is. Interesting. It's free, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. But of course, like like I said before, you know I have chronic sinus problems, and so it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, of course not, right? And and so the air quality is better, but I'm still having these issues, y'all. You know, and and when my sinuses get so bad, it's like teeth pain and yeah, jaw pain. Oh, oh geez, yeah, you got nasty shit, man. Shit. You know, sometimes I have to pop a Tylenol 650 
I, I bought the big giant bottle, but those things only last two years. I actually will have to buy some more, and they, only because it's going to expire soon. But I don't know. Does aspirin have a... I don't know. I mean, it's funny. They all say, oh, this expires here, this expires there. I have, like, old medications. They all throw them in the toilet over the... Now, if I needed to take it, it doesn't work as much because, you know, it goes That's to degraded a bit over time. But it still works. There's no problem. So it's just a scam. Don't believe all that crap. Unless you see something's wrong with it. Like, oh, it looks like it's, uh, you know, changing color and getting moldy or something. Yeah, get rid of it. Fucking oh, right. and another thing. I've been a little lethargic lately. And so check this out. I've been on this blood pressure medication for years or whatever it is. And... <sighs> I always, no matter what insurance I have, no matter where I get it filled, I'm always getting the generic, and I'm always used to that. Right. So now I got this new health coverage, and it's actually cheaper. Fuck, who knows? Mm-hmm. And I get it filled at CVS and Hoboken. Again, hey, Hoboken, can't afford to live there, though. <laughs> so this new one, my old ones finally ran out, so this new one I've been taking for the past few weeks it's actually it. It's it's the the one I'm supposed. It's not a generic. Mm-hmm. And I checked. There's a label on there, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, so I'm actually now having the medication I'm supposed to have, and not a generic. And I'm I'm wondering if this is making me feel a little like, uh, you know. Yeah, sometimes the formulations are either weaker or you know, <laughs> maybe they work better. They have less of the adulterating uh, ingredients. Who knows? You don't know what you're getting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I haven't taken my blood pressure because I didn't feel the need for it. But mm. I'm curious to see if it's been running a bit low since I've been feeling a little like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not really. I, I, that was one of the things today. I got up at 5 o'clock, mm-hmm. ready to go to work. I said, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just sign on. It's funny because I was on early and I'm like waiting for you and all of a sudden like everything possible happened. I mean, shit fell down. I had to pick all that up. The cat needed to get fixed. He's he's got the he's he's older, so he's got the hyperthyroid thing that they all get. And uh, even the doc, the you know, because doctors usually try to push you into shit. He's like, yeah, you know, at his age, it doesn't matter as long as he's doing okay. And he's doing okay otherwise. But he's always, always fucking hungry, always harassing for food. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go and, like, feed him in the bathroom because the other cats had to try to steal his food when I did it to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, seven things happened at once. Plus, I was finishing up. I was rewatching just for the hell of it, uh, uh, Door to Darkness, you know, the Argento. Oh, uh, oh yeah, I have that in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, they, the tram is still excellent, the one, one of the two Argentos. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the other two are okay still, but not as hot as you remember. But that one is really good. I enjoyed the hell out of that one. But anyway, I was finishing that up, and all this other shit happened right at once. And that was around the time I was like, oh, yeah, one minute. And I'm in the middle of, like, everything's falling over. And <laughs> I, had to, I had to move my guitar case out of the way, the one of them. And it falls over because it's like, I guess the stand is so shitty. And knocked a whole bunch of other stuff over. I was like, oh, my God. So I'm like five minutes. I like, quick, quick, stand all these things back. I put them together. And went, like, all right, here I am. <laughs> Well, no, as you know, most of them are on the wall except for the 12-string the because it's so long. The neck is so long. Mm-hmm. It just looks really weird and awkward. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't really close the door. Right. Because, like, it, it, you know, it's, it's got to, I don't know how many frets it has. It's a really long neck. Right. So I have that in on the stand, the only one that's on the stand. Mm-hmm. But the, the slash uh, Les Paul, yeah. I, I, I keep that in the case it came with. 
Well, yeah, this one here is the one I told you that I leave in the soft case because it's actually yeah. that acoustic I got. Yeah. So I don't like leaving that one out. Other ones I have out, except for well, one of them's in a case. But, you know, I've got a gigging case, but otherwise I just leave them out here because that guy I told you about there wants to be a luthier. Yeah. He says, like, oh, yeah, they need the humidity, whatever. So it's all right, fine. So I have it out here. I play it all the damn time anyway, the, the main one and my bass and all that jazz. But this one here happened to be the one that was still in the soft case but on the stand. So when I set it down, it's like you figure, okay, this thing's going to hold up. They're, you know how stands are. They're not great, but they have a basic whatever. No, it went right down knocked a whole bunch of people over. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. So <laughs> anyway, so here we are. Uh, I got a lot of stands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're getting harder to get cheap. I, I say that. When I had to get this one, we went over to... Uh, you know, a lot of the places went out of business around here, but they all consolidated into, like, this one guitar center. There was, like, a couple of guitar centers. There was, a, you know, there, there was other places around, other chains that were here forever or stores that were here forever. And they basically they all shut down. I don't know if it was COVID or if it was before that or what. But so now it's, like, of everything that was around, we've got, like, one guitar center. So went up there and, and oh, no, we don't have it. They had, usually we get these things for, like, I don't know, five bucks. You know, it's under ten bucks for the cheap little stands. And they're good enough. You know, they uh, yes, I got better ones in the past, but they're not bad. And, uh... No, they only have ones that are like three times or four times the price. I'm like, it's not worth it for a goddamn stand. I'm just sitting around the house. I'm not gigging with it. So, uh, yeah, we had to order it online through them, have it shipped to there. And then... Amazon didn't have it? Yeah, they might have had something similar, but I knew this kind of stand because I've been using them for a while. Okay. I've got a couple different ones, but, you know, this one is like the cheaper one that I started doing later on. I'm like, yeah, fine. If, you know, when you pay like five bucks for the damn thing and it's still metal, it still holds up. I'm like, yeah, fine. It's good enough. I, I have no money for another instrument, and right now I don't have the inclination for an inst- another instrument. But mm-hmm. I noticed that all these guys, Sweetwater... Zounds, uh, mm. they have some nice stuff. I take a look now and then, you know. Mm-hmm. They have some nice stuff, but nothing's in stock. It's like COVID times, you know. Yeah. Nothing, nothing is in stock. Yep. And anything that's in stock will ship from, are you ready? Where? The Guitar Center. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, that's Sweetwater. How is it coming from the Guitar yep. Center? I don't even really like Guitar Center. I mean, I used to go there sometimes to get some work done, but, you know, like we'd have to refret or whatever the hell's going on, you know, tune it up or whatever. When they redid the next, basically, you know, whatever the hell they call it, intoning it. But it's like, I like to use people like Musician's Friend. They're so much better. And if something comes busted, like you had that problem with Sweetwater, no problem. They just send another one out to you, and they, you know, no big deal. Yeah, don't even bother sending it back, or, the, you know, they pay the post well, or whatever. I, what did I buy from Musician's Friend? A couple of years ago, I bought something, mm-hmm. and it shipped from the Guitar Center. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, like the Asian guy I've been dealing with yeah. says, we, we don't have one here, but it's going to ship from this place in Paramus. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't understand. <laughs> it's like they bought everybody out. There was chains and stores that have been in this area for since I was a child. I mean, probably before I was born. And every one of them, basically, other than one has gone under. I'm like, they're all just got subsumed by this fucking guitar center. And there was three of those in the area for a while, and it went down to one. I'm like, what the hell? So I don't know. I hate this Monopoly shit. <laughs> oh, hold on. My buddy just texted me. Oh, this is hilarious. So, what the hell? <clears throat> so, so he said to me, ah, oh, jeez. Can you test this? I got to call the message back. Okay, sure. All right. Yeah. Uh, Hello. Hello. Yeah, sorry about that. Everything okay? Yeah, yeah, we can tell you this other story. And then I, my phone is, the volume's turned off. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't ring. So I saw she called. She'd been having a problem with her one of her legs. And she said, like, the vein hurts. I'm like, what do you mean the vein hurts? Yeah. So apparently uh, there are vascular and vein doctors. Clinics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, 
because she's working all the time and she needs Saturday hours. Mm -hmm. So I found one in Jersey City and I talked to the guy before I gave her the information. So you're open on Saturdays. Oh, yeah, by appointment only. Okay, great. I gave her the info. She goes, on Saturdays, they're only in Linden. This is like a lot of, you know, like when I was looking for my back, you find these doctors listed in Jersey City. You go to the website, they're in like fucking Okefenokee Swamp. I've had that so many times. I mean, like even the guy there on my shoulder, he's listed in, I don't know, three different cities that are all over the fucking place. And one of them being, you know, Manhattan itself, where he runs this whole, you know, heads this whole clinic. Right. So I'm like, I'm not going there. And this other place is like, you know, way the hell down. So I'm like, I'm not going there. But, you know, the one near me, I was like, oh, yeah, he's here on like Monday mornings and like, you know, Thursday afternoons. And that's it. And then there was another one. We went to like an eye doctor. It was the same shit. It's like, everybody has got this thing going where they're like work out of three or four different places and one of them that we were going to go to originally when we were looking for something for my wife a while back they're like oh yeah we, we works out of this one as well as you know these other two places and we try to go there and i'm like oh yeah he doesn't work here anymore i'm like what oh boy. yeah i i sent her four months ago uh she went for um she wanted to get some botox yeah and okay. she got she got this card for a care credit okay and they gave her like five grand wow I didn't think they did stuff for that because it's like considered vanity, whatever, you know. No, you could use it for whatever. You just look up place on the website mm -hmm. that accept it. Okay. So I found her a spot, and she went down there with, with our niece, and they mm -hmm. said, oh, no, we don't do it here. you got to go to, like, wherever she had to go. It was far. It was, like, <laughs> 45 minutes away. Jeez. So she went to, like, Lawrenceville, Kansas, something like that. Oh. No, I mean Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Okay, so, <laughs> I'm watching too much Supernatural or something. Anyway, so yeah, so she went to Lawrenceville, New Jersey, which is not far from PA. Okay. And I'm like, just don't go. No, I have an appointment. She went, mm -hmm. and they 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 gave her a shot, and uh, they did some stuff, mm -hmm. and she saw that they billed her for four grand. Oof. And she, she freaked, and she got in contact with them. She goes, what's this? Yeah. Oh, we're, bill we're billing you for the whole treatment. Uh, in advance, like? Yeah. And she goes, no, 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 no. And they said, it's only partial. And she goes, well, what's the full? Oh, 15. Oh. She goes, that's not what anybody told me. Yeah. She said, just bill me for what you did that day. And I was like 22. Okay. Right? 2200 just for what whatever they did that one day crazy so they did credit her mm -hmm. the remainder so i said okay that's good and then care credit says well you have and they're one of these weird cards mm. if you don't use it they reduced your credit to the amount you used oh jeez. okay so i said oh wow you're you're paying off the thing that wound up being useless to you right because you didn't want to go through with it you didn't have the money to go through with it right yeah, so I don't know. I, she she texted me the address for this place in Linden. I, I I'm gonna have to look it up later because if it's if it's so far, it's not her, worth Hawaii. I'll just keep looking. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope it works out. <laughs> after all that. Yeah, no. She says she she texted me uh, Monday morning. She said her legs in a lot of pain. And, she can't even go for massage anymore. She likes to, like, relax with a massage on the weekend because her yeah. leg hurts so much. I'm like, Jesus. Oh, I know the thing I was going to say was really on the last cruise, Al, Al Stewart, you know, you're the cat. Yeah. yeah. He has a backing band called The Empty Pockets. Okay, whatever. And they also had separate sets. And I saw Al Stewart, 
do his whole thing with them. Mm. It was fine. I saw a portion of their set. It was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to fill up some space, I guess, and they gave them two sets on their own. So my buddy said to me the other day, you want to go over at Cafe Walk? I'm like, no. <laughs> it's Prague. It's not Prague. I mean, it's, it's, it's whatever. Yeah. Even else do, it's not Prague. No, it's, it's like, you know, I don't know what you call it, schmaltzy 70 stuff. I mean, I didn't mind the Year of the Cat and Time Pass just because it's just got like the kind of ring-modulated Mysterioso organ he uses all the time. But, you yeah. know, that's basically it for him. <laughs> he's yeah, he's not like Ken Stevens, who I actually like a lot more mm. of his stuff. But, anyway, no, I, I was like, what the fuck? I never saw Ken uh, Al Stewart. Yeah. You know, he's on the cruise. It was Why enjoyable. Not? Yeah, sure. I have nothing negative about that. So I said to my friend, I wasn't throwing empty pockets on the cruise. Why would I go see him on the... <laughs> Before, when I knew, when I thought I was going into work, I said, you want to have dinner tonight? Yeah. He said, no, I'm going to see Empty Pockets. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So he also texted me. He goes, you want to go for dinner? They canceled. <laughs> I said, really? Wow. So one of them sick. I said, oh, jeez. I said, no, I'm doing a podcast. Okay. Which will probably take us until 7 o'clock. Oh, yeah, that's because forever. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I wanted to get this one started early, but, you know, everything goes wrong as usual. So, hey, well, here we are. Guitar is <laughs> falling off. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, and it knocked a whole bunch of shit over, and I'm, like, searching around for parts and putting her back together. Yeah, you don't want to know. <laughs> oh, how's it sound? Did it sound okay? Uh, it was fine. The only thing was um, you have that echo on you again, but, you it's know. It's weird, you know, because I checked the latest Skype mm-hmm. version I have, which is I, I have the latest one. Yeah. And if you ever... I don't know if you ever do, but if you ever watch any of my Colors of Politics... Oh, yeah. No, I've seen some. Yeah. Um, there's no echo. It's so strange. So it must be in the... Because I don't hear an echo. Maybe YouTube corrects for it. I just don't know. Well, they go through Podbean first. Yeah, they probably do some auto-correction. Yeah. Yeah, I can say a lot of times I can just clear it out anyway. By but anyway, it's a win file, which I play first before I upload it anywhere. I'm not going to tell you... How many times I recorded these things and then go to play it, I found out I didn't hit the video button. Oh, God. <laughs> 23 minutes of me talking to a still photograph. That would kill me, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I could do that again. Ask my wife the one thing I refuse to do. I don't care if I got a bust ass. And I'm, admittedly, you know, even if I'm not doing anything, if I'm not working or whatever, I'm still like always busy. I'm kind of like a hard worker by nature. But don't ever ask me to redo anything unless it's just okay well I, you know i almost spoke i got a word wrong or something or i gotta edit something you know that kind of stuff's fine you know proofreading things whatever but to like okay i wrote this now i gotta rewrite it because i've lost things like that and had to do that it makes me so fucking angry i like go up the wall i can't even think well, watch the one i did watch the recent one i did for the uh, mirror mirror to the sky yes album it's about 15 minutes long uh, it's actually pretty positive. You know, it could have been worse, right? Yeah. So <laughs> about halfway through it, I thought in my mind I was saying Mirror to the Stars, which mm-hmm. I did it, the Roger Dean cover. Right. And I, I auto-corrected myself the way through. Oh, did I say Mirror to the Stars? I meant the sky. Right. And I said, fuck it. It's all, you know. Yeah, who cares? Whatever. So Podbean removed my thing because I said, fuck it. Seriously? Yeah, but YouTube let it go, and it was already uploaded to YouTube. That's unbelievable. I mean, maybe it's some kind of YouTube regulation? I don't know. No, YouTube let it go. 
I don't understand that because obviously we're on Podbean and sure as fuck don't censor me. <laughs> I, I wouldn't tolerate that. And then Facebook caught the Podbean one. Yeah. But, but Podbean already took it down. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Facebook says you cannot do it. You violated our community. Oh, God. You, you know. Did you see that I got one? Oh, man, you don't know about that. I was complaining about the other day. Yeah, I'm in some a, group, and somebody's talking about, like, you know, what's the most annoying fucking song you ever heard in your life? And I says, what? I don't know who the hell does it, but that stupid-ass song about, like, I drive my car across the bridge, I don't care, I love it. I says, whoever wrote that thing, I want to strangle them, right? Oh, they pull that down, they're like, oh, you violated community songs. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? This is, you know, we think I'm like a, I don't know what, one of these fucking MAGA people going trying to kill people. I'm just, it's, it's just figure of speech. Everybody says this stuff. Now nah, they're real weird about things now. You can't do figure of speech like that. I, yeah. I catch myself when I'm replying to or commenting on something. Because mm-hmm. I say to myself, this is going to bite me in the ass. Yeah, it's like Snowflake Nation. <laughs> what the hell's and, going and on? They don't but... tell you what it is. Yeah. That you did. So, it's nearly impossible to find out. Oh, you just got to guess. Yeah, sounds like, yeah, well, that must be it. Like, really? <laughs> I've, been, I've been pretty good so far. I also rewrote a lot of chokers. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to go right into it? Yeah, might as well. Let's go. All right, let's go. All right. It looks like really smoking hot. You know, like if, if you were gay, you would do it. Hell yeah. yeah. Like, or, or let them blow you or something like that. You know, it's like crazy. No, not, not that we're like that. We're straight guys. But I'm telling Harry Grant really looked like magnificently like, yeah, something hetero. And... Oi, the 50s. Everything you hate about society, culture, and cinema, all in one neat decade-long package. Again, what the fuck happened to society in the 50s? Conservatism sucks. understand where we're coming from with a lot of stuff that we throw out as zingers because you know, that was really a rough decade and the the boulderization and the tampering of hollywood and this faux morality of the Hayes code and society yeah. at the time is just repugnant and we do not want to go back there again and unfortunately some people are trying to drag us back there so do your best vote and make sure they do not get into office fight them <laughs> in the streets with uh, protests and you know complaints and letter writing whatever else you got to do and just make sure that we can stay in a free and open culture as opposed to some of the crap that we lived through back in the 50s, apparently, <laughs> uh, as these shows make apparent.